Hello and welcome back to Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host Tim and joining me as always is... Catherine! And we are back to discuss... It's just a turd burglar of a film. <laughs> Holy shnikes. <laughs> um, this was my suggestion and I regret it uh, immensely. Uh, we're here to talk about uh, possibly one of the most maligned films in film history and there have been some some darn doozies but uh that is 2003's the core directed by john amriel uh, a director that if if you take this out of his filmography if you just like pluck this one out and say oh he didn't direct this has actually had a or, or amiel excuse me not amriel uh, he's actually had a pretty decent Film career. He did uh, Copycat, uh, a nice little Harry Connick Jr. serial killer movie from the 90s that was, this, was pretty good. Sigourney this is the Weaver, guy who know? directed Entrapment. Yeah. Which little, is held up Catherine as like Zeta Jones. As a pretty as a pretty cool movie. You know, mm. it's not great, but no. people liked Entrapment. It made money at the box office. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and it's. Uh, for me, that was the film. I mean, Catherine Zeta-Jones had like a pretty decent run there in the 90s that established her as like, you know, premier film star. Uh, but I think Entrapment, I mean, in terms of at, at the time, the movie that people were talking about, like, oh, she's really good. Um, Entrapment was definitely at the top yeah, of that list. That was it. Because <clears throat> uh, that she was in Mask of Zorro and everybody was like, oh, mm -hmm. who is she? Because, I mean, she's beautiful. Yeah. And then she was in this movie and people were like, oh, who is she? And then, <laughs> right. you know, her career took off. Yeah, it, it was it was kind of interesting. Uh, he's really moved in in recent years. He's basically been exclusively a television director, uh, which he has been involved in some pretty big projects. Um, he did uh, a couple episodes of that Carnival Row series with Orlando Bloom that was on Amazon Prime, which while I did not care for the series, it did look good. Like the show had a, had a nice visual style to it. Um, but he is older as well. I think he's in his seventies. So, you know, that's, that's not necessarily strange. You know, TV shoots are shorter, more controlled. You're not gone for months at a time. It's really just a kind of a, you know, a, a month or a couple of weeks, but um, in any case, you know, not a terrible director and a film that is, is not full of bad actors uh you know the the two things that disaster movies kind of run on um so let's we'll get into the cast because there's a lot to say about the cast of this film <laughs> a lot uh but let's talk about the the premise because one of the reasons why i i was kind of settled on doing this is that there have actually been reports going around over the last couple of weeks uh about the rotation of the earth's core stopping or shifting. Right. Uh, and scientists believe that this, this may be starting to happen, which if it happens would cause sort of some erratic changes in earth's magnetic fields. Right. So for, but couple, nothing couple of, that couple, we will couple of months, compasses might not work. Right. Yeah. You know? Like we're not like, going to perceive this in any serious way as people who sit on our butts and watch movies. Uh, no, um, I mean, obviously it could, it could cause significant issues for, you know, navigational instrumentation that still uses very classical methods, 
But I mean, the vast majority of the world's logistics systems run on GPS now, and GPS does not need the Earth's magnetic fields to do anything to work, right? It's fine. Mm. Um, but so like the, the, the base premise of the core, which is a large scale natural disaster film, uh, of which of course we have had hundreds. Uh, I mean, it's such a large and specific genre that Wikipedia has a specific page that is just a list of disaster films. Yeah. Right. And these go way back, right? These are not a modern invention. I mean, we're talking about the, you know, uh, it seems like it comes in waves. Like we'll have, we'll have maybe a period of like five to 10 years where disaster movies seem to come out more often. And then they kind of die away because I just think it's oversaturation. Yeah. Because I, I guess at a certain point, I mean, these aren't easy films to make. I mean, they aren't, they're, they're special effects extravaganzas most of the time. Um, but in the grand scheme of filmmaking, they also tend to be pretty straightforward, right? You've got a group of people or several groups of people trapped in a series of harrowing situations that they barely escape, right? It's a simple sort of adventure movie kind of premise, you know, all the way back to like the 1930s when uh, was it Spencer Tracy was in uh, one that was about the San Francisco earthquake or whatever, right? Like it's just, you know, one of those it's one of those genres that is, is usually very compelling. It's easy for people to get into. It's easy to have sort of empathy for the characters and what's going on. And so like they've Hollywood has always made these in one form or another, but it seems that mostly because of the efforts of people like Roland Emmerich and Michael Bay, this genre spiked in the nineties, like huge. Um, you know, so Emmerich is, is of course responsible for, you know, Independence Day, which I would say was the real watershed moment. You know, that's not a natural disaster film. It's an alien invasion movie, but you're still seeing, you know, it established still you know, seeing like to, the White House get blown up. We got to blow up some world monuments. We got to blow up some easily identifiable cool. locations. You know, like it's those became sort of these hallmark pieces of this genre. Whereas before, if we're talking about like the Poseidon adventure, you know, or Titanic, even really, ah, um, you know, Titanic. you know, where we've got this, this like central location and it's a you know ship going down, whatever. But in the nineties, we start seeing, you know, Dante's peak volcano, volcano with right? Tommy Lee Jones, with Tommy <laughs> Lee Jones. Um, you know, we've got, uh, there was the Corman avalanche film back in the seventies, which was a, was probably the end of the of the last wave of these prior to the 90s cuz these were not big movies in the 80s necessarily. Uh I'm sure there were a couple that eked their way out, but for the most part by the end of the 70s that sort of 60s and 70s wave of disaster movies died. But then it came comes roaring back in the 90s and I think a lot of it had to do with special effects uh and yeah. visual effects. Like they got to the point where it was it was relatively cheap and easy to do this. Because if you go back and watch, I've actually seen Avalanche, the one that came out in 78, um, because that has, uh, oh, he was in the Twin Peaks. um, He played the sheriff in the Twin Peaks third season. Robert Forster, is that his name? Um, Yes. uh, He was in Avalanche. And and like Avalanche, there are whole sequences in that movie where you can tell it's like a pie plate train model. And they're just dumping fake snow down a thing that kind of looks like a mountain, right? You know, like they just didn't have the technology to make these things look that good. 
Um, and so like, you know, in the nineties that all changes. Right. And of course we get like twister, we get, um, <laughs> yay. <laughs> I know. Right. Um, I mean, and then probably the, the one, two punch of deep impact and Armageddon, right. The meteor disaster movies, uh, which Armageddon and, was. And back then you had huge. to choose, were you into Armageddon or were you into deep impact? Right. Were you into the thinky meteor movie? Or the Bruce Willis action to Die Hard in Space <laughs> Meteor movie. And most people went Die Hard in Space Meteor movie, I think. Well, do you want to see Morgan Freeman? Have, do you want to see Morgan Freeman have debates in bunkers that just watch Deep Impact? <laughs> but so like these things went nuts. And so as the two thousands hit, you know, obviously they're trying to milk as much out of the genre as they can. You know, Roland Emmerich, a year after this film, would come out with Day After Tomorrow which for me is that was the moment where I was kind of done was day after tomorrow when Jake Gyllenhaal was out running air, freezing air down a hallway. <laughs> I was like, I think we've reached peak disaster film yeah. because I'm not sure you can outrun freezing air. Um, it I seems like wrong. Roland Emmerich is, not a is like Roland Emmerich is always like the herald of these things. Yes. Like he'll he'll usher in a disaster era, and he and will. And he'll walk it right out the door. <laughs> <laughs> First in, last out. That's, That's the right. Roland Emmerich well, way. I'm the last one to shut the lights off when I leave. Uh, and and I mean, he really may have put like a significant pin in it with Moonfall. Like that's the the other yeah. unspoken thing is that Moonfall may have quite literally killed this big disaster natural disaster movie genre for a while i'm sure they're not gone they're never going to be gone but as far as these like popcorn muncher natural disaster movies i think we're done with them for a while uh but yeah so i mean day after tomorrow was kind of where i had but there were successful ones of these well after that 2012 was huge you know john cusack the limousine driver <laughs> uh, you know trucking was, his way across america what a weird I, movie 2012 made no sense to me. That was where I, I, I felt like that movie was just completely off the rails because it was the first time that it felt like we were following all these disparate groups and then their stories just never really connected. Like, I mean, I know they all kind of come together on that arc thing at the end, I guess, but, but then that fails immediately and they all like get thrown in the ocean. It was, it was ridiculous. I, that movie didn't work for me, but it obviously did for some people. Um, I think it, it was poised to, to grasp at that, oh, this stuff might actually happen fear that was running around around that time oh, and it maybe got people to go out. So they, I don't know, maybe they thought 2012 was going to be like a prophecy film where they could be like taking notes and like, oh, okay, I'm going to plan for this. And well, and like now the world really is driver. ending and nobody's doing anything about it. That's true. Roland Emmerich yeah. tried to tell us. He was a prophet. I He's mean, been trying to tell us for decades. <laughs> that's right. He he wanted us to be ready, but we what weren't if, listening. Like, like post- Post point of no return with climate change, there there rises up like a cult of Roland Emmerich worshippers. Like he's the their em chiefest prop prophet. The, the Emmerichians. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the Rolandians. The end of days is so funny when it's approaching uh, us so quickly. It is, you know, disaster. <laughs> it's so good. Um, okay. So anyway, so the core its basic premise is what we're seeing some current reports about yeah. that the the earth's core stops spinning and and as a result earth's magnetic fields go haywire and 
birds die, apparently, when that happens. I, you know, wasn't aware that the lack of a magnetic field would just cause... A, I mean, I know in the film they justify that the birds just lose their sense of direction and just go <laughs> flying into any surface available Instead of die. landing, they will just yeah, fly right into any available right. window. Instead of just fluttering gently to the ground and then staying there until they reorient themselves, they just slam headlong into buses and cars, trains, and you know anything they can find just to murder themselves. You know... But the the big threat is that those the loss of the magnetic fields will make us vulnerable to increased solar radiation that will cook the planet and murder everyone on the surface. Um, which again, I'm I'm not a scientist, okay, but that seems dumb, just at the jump, yeah. because you know I do remember from like eighth grade science that we still get about 80 to 90% of the sun's radiation on our planet, right? Like that's why it's good to like wear sunscreen when you're outside for long periods of time. Like we're still being bombarded by that. So, so if we're still getting between 80 and 90% of that radiation, you know, especially the background, like, you know, microwave radiation type stuff, then I don't see how going to a hundred percent, would cause, oh, let's say, the Golden Gate Bridge to melt. I, I don't understand that. That doesn't that was make a very lot of funny, sense. though. It is funny, especially because it's <laughs> the guy. Okay, so, like, again, it's a disaster movie. You can't just have the bridge melt. You have to, like, show a guy sitting in a car on the bridge being like, what's going on? Oh, my God. And it's then that's the, um, the resident from scrubs that causes yep. JT and he's just like, he's got his arm out the window and he's like talking on his cell phone or whatever. And then he like gets burned. He's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it's a wonderful performance. He's just, Ew, Oh my God, my arm. And then the bridge collapses and he dies. So it's like, well, was the arm really that significant then knowing he was about to plummet into the ocean? Uh, I don't know. Or San Francisco Bay, at least. Uh, so yes, so the core is is a natural disaster movie that that is it wants to be scientifically serious, which I think is its first of many mistakes. If this movie engaged with the stupidity of its premise and just languished in it, just enjoyed the fact that it was ludicrous. I think it, it could be a lot more fun. It's already pretty damn fun. Cause this, it, this is a premise <clears throat> that kind of needs Roland Emmerich. And where oh, was totally. He? Yeah. Roland Emmerich was very busy having Jake Gyllenhaal run down hallways away from freezing air. That's what, what a shame. Doing. I feel like this movie would have been <laughs> so much more fun if he had directed it and then maybe just not made the day after tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Really just swap projects. Right. Um, and I think there is something to note here about that. Um, you know, after I started this and and then got interrupted, so I, I had to come back and finish it later. Um, and and so I was like, man, you know, oh god, this movie is such a struggle bus to watch at times. And so I I, I put on the rock, right? Michael Bay's, you know, really the movie that Michael Bay had done, like Bad Boys, I guess at that time. But Rock was kind of where he achieved. Like, oh, this dude is going places kind of thing. And, you know, we we bag on Michael Bay consistently on the show. Oh, yeah. I feel it's one of our best aspects. 
I won't stop. I'll never stop. Is repeatedly bagging on Michael Bay. But watching that movie and sort of remembering seeing it for the first time in the 1990s when it came out, it looked like nothing else. And the thing that makes Michael Bay's movies work more often than not is that they are absolute freight trains. Yeah. Once they start, there is really no stopping for more than 10 seconds. Right? Enough time for Nicolas Cage to deliver a punchy bit of dialogue and then they're gone. It doesn't allow you time to process anything that's happening, so you don't realize how stupid it is until long no, after it's over. It's 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 got to be intentional. Like he must know that these the things these people are saying and the, the <laughs> actions they're performing are ludicrous. And he just barrels through it. There's no time to stop. It tru- it's truly an incredible thing to watch. And this movie, unfortunately, doesn't have that kind of forward momentum. If it did from somebody like Roland Emmerich or Michael Bay, I think it, I think it would be a much more, I think it'd be a much more enjoyable film just in the watching. It's an enjoyable film to watch because you can just dunk on it the whole way through. But I think it could actually be a pretty watchable, just dumb sci-fi movie if somebody else was was at the wheel that had a a bit more of a handle on those particular techniques. Um, so anyway, the, the Earth's core has stopped its spinning. Magnetics, haywire, polarity, magnets, <laughs> births. <laughs> we could go on. Um, but that's kind of it, right? And so the, the whole thing, though, what makes this such a unique film is that is the solution that they propose which is to drill to the core of the planet and then blow up nuclear bombs in the core to start it spinning again. That it uh, has, it has like dig a hole to China energy. Like, you know how you kids would say yeah, like that? Lo- like you would dig like a Looney hole Tunes. to China. Yeah. Looney like, Tunes energy. Yeah. It's a, it's no, just no stop movie this is dumb (laughs) and it really goes out of its way to try and make you think that this is not dumb that's maybe the worst part it's movie takes itself very seriously that is its mistake is that this film takes its premise its characters its dialogue and its visual effects way too seriously uh, and by doing so, it just kind of digs its own grave, quite literally, uh, in terms of of standing amongst the, the disaster film pantheon, which I think, even with that ridiculous premise, that's just nonsensical from top to bottom, even with that, this could stand alongside some of the better ones, depending on how it's handled. Because yeah. again, all of seen- these movies are stupid. Yeah, I mean the the concept of the super tornado and twister. Like, I know that that's I know that that's I know a that's thing. wrong. <laughs> I like I, I I get it, but the way that it's handled in the movie, where you can just kind of drive right up to it, and just kind of like, I'm just gonna stand next to this swirling vortex of doom and, and be like, fantastic. and and I'm then like be just uh, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, <laughs> and then. I mean, the ending of that movie, I mean, I, we watched it not too long ago and, and even my That's kids, bad. my, my, like my 13 year old daughter, my 11 year old son were like, 
So they survived a super tornado by tying themselves to a pole stuck with in the a ground belt. with a belt. <laughs> just a okay. regular old belt. It's just a regular old belt found out back in the tool shed. Um, and I get it's supposed to be like this pole that goes down into the well or whatever. But I'm like, dude, come on. Like you showed a, a, a full sized adult human man getting ripped out of the ground by one that was half as powerful as this one's supposed to be. And you're telling me that Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt just got to hang on to a belt and they're good. Yep. yep that's all we need. Mm-hmm. If it can keep uh, my Wranglers up, then it can save true. me from a tornado. Save me from a tornado. Uh, anyway, so they're all ridiculous. And the fact that the core is, is endlessly trying to explain itself speaks to just how little they actually believed in the science that they were putting out there. Uh, okay, so that's the core. We're gonna break down, you know, mo- most of the film, but let's let's talk about the cast because this is 2003, and for 2003, there are a lot of like, I'll call them emerging stars, right? These are people that actually, after this film, go on to, in many cases, much greater success. Yeah. Um, it is wild how many people are in this movie. Yeah, and it's a relatively small cast. Like, there's not a huge sort of core group of people. But, I mean, at the front, we have square-jawed superhero Aaron Eckhart um, playing a a shambolic, nerdy uh, geophysicist. He's the cool professor. He's cool professor geophysicist man who can't tie yeah. a tie, but is one of the world's foremost geniuses. Yeah. Um, you know, but Hillary Swank will need to tie his tie for him. Uh, I, I do love it when a movie like this, and this is okay. I mean, we have to address the fact that this, this is a, this may be the most common trope in these disaster movies is that you have a ridiculously attractive human being performing a job function or serving in a role that they make no sense in whatsoever. Like, I don't care how much you ruffle up Aaron Eckhart's hair. That man's jawline could cut glass. Like, like he would, it doesn't work. I believe that he would be like a district attorney in, in a city where people put on costumes and fight crime. Yes. Perhaps with a last name like Dent. Uh, Perhaps interesting campaign slogan. Uh, like I believe in someone dent. Uh, yeah, definitely. But he, what I really, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I loved this about his performance, but he's very extreme. Like yeah. he's, um, they took Aaron Eckhart and they really turned him up to 11 with, uh, just the emotions and <laughs> I know exactly the seats you're talking about. Wow. Um, yeah, there's there is a uh I, I guess I'll you know you can't see me, but I'm I'm quote air quoting myself. There is a confrontation later in this film My uh, goodness. between Hillary Swank and Aaron Eckhart that it hits a it hits a tone that I don't think his character recovers from for the remainder of the film. <laughs> no. Um <laughs> It's it's rough to and say it's, the least. It comes it comes immediately after. I mean, we'll talk about this as we we go on. But just nothing in this movie makes any sense. No. They'll have 
two identical events, like where the same thing more or less happens mm-hmm. and they'll treat it completely different. Yes, just like if, from scene to scene, the characters just be changing. They're just changing yeah. all the time. And yep. we don't Some know why. Some things really bother them. Other things, not so much. It's, and it's and very like it, it can be the same thing, but when it happens again, this time it's war. It's a big deal. <laughs> it's so bad. It's the worst, you guys. Uh, so we have Aaron Eckhart discount Thomas Jane, or maybe it's yeah. maybe Thomas Jane is discount Aaron Eckhart now. Uh, they may have flipped. Honestly, we love Thomas um, Jane though. I do, I do. I think he would have been he would have been pretty good in this too. Uh, so we have Aaron Eckhart who plays I uh, God I don't even remember his name uh, Josh something Keys maybe Josh Keys yeah um, so he he's a geophysicist supposedly who consults with the government occasionally and also plays trumpets into rocks to demonstrate sound waves to his students in class in a in a in like a freshman physics class he's doing these demonstrations mm-hmm. yes yes that's good uh second up is is hillary swank and uh when i was watching this my partner was kind of just lounging on the couch next to me not interested and, and i wouldn't expect her to be she looked up when hillary swank appeared and and just the expression on her face was like uh what she's in this <laughs> it's like yeah. uh, and you know it's it's a level of disdain where i i kind of want to pull out the doll and be like point to where on the doll the next karate kid t- you know touched you like it's that kind I, of and that like kind of it's hatred. sad i don't hate hillary swank i do not and after this film i feel like this was a big enough of a career disaster for her that i think she actually started making much smarter choices she made million dollar um, baby right after this. Exactly. Like I think she like I I'm I bet it went like this. Her agent was like, "Oh honey, these movies make so much money. You will be getting royalty checks in your 90s from this thing. Let's do this, right? Like did you see Armageddon? Oh my god, the money. Um and and so she did it. And it was a complete disaster. And I think after that, she's like, I need small. I need, I need good stories. I need, I need, you know, opportunities. I need to make movies that mean something to me. Right. I, and, and to be fair, Hillary Swank post this film has sort of thoroughly avoided the sort of big box office trap. Well, like she came out swinging with Boys Don't Cry. Yeah, I mean, that I mean, was that was the late success. 90s. And that right. movie is amazing. Um, hard to watch, but like, it's really good. It's, and then yeah, to make this, it's like, we're well, taking kind of a step back. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might have made it a bad choice here. <laughs> I mean, right before this, she did Christopher Nolan's Insomnia remake. And yeah, was, which was, was great. very good in that. She's very good. So in that. good. And so I, I really feel like this was a, oh, I'm, I'm going to take my shot at one of these like, you know, big budget Hollywood studio movies. And it did not play out. And for the better, I feel like that has motivated her to be much more choosy with projects. And I mean, because since then, she's, you know, again, the year after Million Dollar Baby, then Freedom Riders and P.S. I Love You in the same year, which, of course, are, you know, genre films of their own right. So I don't want to make it seem like they're like these big indie darlings, but, you know, still big successes, 
good characters, a lot of attention. Um, and then she kind of goes not dark, but she drops down to just like a couple movies, if not one movie a year. Uh, she did do the Amelia Earhart movie, which was probably a bit Oscar Beatty. I mean, felt like it anyway. And, and then, you know, she, she kind of just does whatever. She's not super involved in that kind of stuff. And, and I feel like that's for the better. So maybe she learned, maybe she's the rare actor who learned that her lesson from doing one of these and said, never again, <laughs> right? This is not happening. I don't know. Uh, but so she is a pilot in this, um, uh, Rebecca, uh, well, everybody just calls her Beck, right? She's Beck in this and, and she's an air force pilot and astronaut. And, and the first time we're introduced to her is, is she's she fucks up. She makes a mistake, right? Or I guess ultimately it's the core that messes them up, but she's held responsible for it. Um, and they are piloting a shuttle back down to earth. They come in off course because of magnetic fields and using compasses, I guess. Uh, and so they, they crash land in Los Angeles and they land in the LA river and, and it's actually a huge success because nobody gets dead, but you know, obviously yeah, like, it's this huge, I think, like, I think real NASA. NASA would be like, Oh wow. Good job. Nice work. Yeah. But movie job, NASA everybody. is like you fucked up. Yeah. All those lives landed. that you just saved. Fuck mm. you. You did a bad job. The nose of your aircraft almost hit that guy <laughs> with the paint bucket. How dare you? Um, and and so she is accompanied by her commanding officer, Bruce Greenwood, uh, who plays another pilot, uh, Bob Iverson, I guess. And I I feel bad for Bruce Greenwood in this movie because I, I am. We really are avowed lovers he's great of bruce greenwood like i'll watch bruce greenwood in anything and he's actually and he's still good in this but i feel bad for him because he has one line to deliver over and over again in different ways and that is in essence you're not ready beck like he just says that over and over and over again and it's supposed to be like this deep lesson about a commander's more about being more than being skillful it's more than being technically proficient it's about you know understanding when you have to put your life on the line, which ironically we didn't see Iverson do in the opening situation that they found themselves in. He didn't try to do that. He was just going to like, I guess land the shuttle in downtown Los Angeles because that's what the computer said to do. But so like, it's this whole thing where she has to learn how to make the hard choices, which of course is a setup for, I guess you could call it a payoff at the end. It's not really, but anyway, uh, so, you know, she's our co-lead they they desperately attempt to develop some kind of romantic tension between her and Eckhart over the course of this film. Oh no. And it does not work. Um there's a lot of reshoots at the end of this movie and one of them is I'm relatively certain is them like supposedly in the ship after as they're getting rescued spoilers sorry. Um Spoilers, spoilers they don't die spoiler, spoilers if you thought that the heroes would die at the end of one of these movies but um and, and they're like having a moment right like 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 they're about to like smooch get it on and it's like what nothing in this film has made me believe that these people would walk away from it being like I, you know i think you're all right mr teacher man you know I, I don't think so there's there's just no time or space 
for these characters to develop anything like that. Absolutely not. Yeah. There, there could be if the movie were written differently. <laughs> <laughs> written better? <laughs> or if, like yes. it were about something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I bet these characters could really fall in love if this was a romantic <laughs> comedy where they just went to tea shops and stuff. <laughs> but the the movie just doesn't, I mean, it's a very asexual movie. Yeah, if like I can use that term loosely, yeah. like it just it doesn't have a lot of romantic steam. Like there's just nothing like that happening. Which I don't mind if movies don't go the route of romance. Yeah, but totally. then to shoehorn it in is weird. Yeah, it seemed like a a gap filler. Like somebody made a note from the studio, like we need a romance plot line. These movies always have a romance plot line. How else are we going to get the wives to see this? One? That's right. Exactly. How are we going to get the ladies to go with their husbands to see the world explode? And it, it really just doesn't work. And, and again, I think your statement is correct. The movie's just asexual. Like it doesn't have the space or the time to develop romantic relationships because the whole, this movie gives itself a very hard time limit to get things done. Like they are, I mean, they are on the back foot from the first scene and they are constantly trying to catch up. So there's, you know, like there, there isn't that, or at least we're not shown, you know, them working together side by side for months and sort of developing this rapport. We get a couple of those scenes, but that doesn't seem to be the point of them. So yeah. And we can talk about that a little bit more as we go, I suppose. Um, then sort of rounding out the cast outside of our, our co-leads, we have Delroy Lindo, who I love a good Delroy Lindo performance. Like he's Malcolm X, man. Like he's really good. Um, like and and many other Spike Lee joints, and rightly so. Uh, I love Delroy Lindo, and I think he's completely yeah. underutilized in this movie. <laughs> he um, was he was like the one of the first actors where I was like, "Why are you here? Mm-hmm. Surely you Absolutely. had more options." Yeah, I. It just does not seem like a. It just doesn't seem like the kind of film that that he would be involved in. I am certainly glad that he's here. I think he he does a great job. He's given a ridiculous death in this movie. I, yeah, ludicrous from top to bottom how that man goes out. Uh, it's you know it's heroic, you know, swelling music and everything, but just a stupid death. <laughs> so yeah. Dumb. Uh, then we have Stanley El Tuch Tucci, and um, this is one of my favorite people. Uh, absolutely i i will never get tired of stanley tucci being in movies and he improves every movie that he's in so this this movie actually gained a couple of points just from him being here i love him i agree a hundred percent i i have a very difficult time not enjoying a stanley tucci performance i think he was the only one having fun and and honestly that was going to be my my point as well if everyone in this movie was playing at the same level as Stanley Tucci in this movie, <laughs> it I, been think great. The, I think the core would be amazing because he is just hamming it up. I mean, he's in a terrible wig, just yeah. the worst wig. I mean, just let the man be bald. They were, you could tell, and they, they even reference it in the film. Like they wanted him to be this sort of Carl Sagan figure Right, like someone who had emerged from the scientific community into that sort of pop culture spotlight and now had all this prestige. And so that's how he gets brought in is that Aaron Eckhart's character 
brings him this like manila folder full of papers and he's like the world's ending uh and and this like famous scientist is like "Hmm, let me take a look at your research then i suppose like yeah okay sure that would happen he would immediately be tackled and shuffled away but you know he's supposed to be this like carl sagan i guess a more modern analog would be sagan's successor with like um um I want to say Neil Patrick Harris, but that's Neil deGrasse Tyson. There we go. <laughs> Shit. Uh, yes, Neil Patrick Harris, preeminent physicist. Um, <laughs> but uh, it would be like Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? This person that has like this this general authority to to comment on scientific matters. And you know, again, I, I don't want to bag too much on Tucci here. He's having a good time. His character like loves smoking, so like that's a big plot point at the end. <laughs> He's like, I refuse to help unless you let me smoke inside this enclosed space. It's wonderful. It's very good. Um, but again, just it's like he's in a different movie, right? It's yeah. like he it's like his scenes were shot on different days and everybody else wasn't there and he was just kind of doing whatever. Without him in the movie, it would have been so desperately unfunny that I might have died while watching it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like he like is his... the comedic relief. Uh, yeah. It's, it's remarkable how much of that gets hung on him in this movie. Um, like they try to give Aaron Eckhart some funny lines and, and then his, uh, the, the French, um, physicist Aaron Eckhart comes is too to beautiful help. to be funny. Yeah, I mean, he and he just doesn't. I mean, at this at least at this point in his career, he did not have the chops for it. Like, he just cannot carry a scene with with humor, in my opinion. Um, but so we have, uh, what is it? Is Checky? Is that his name? Checky Cario? Uh, yes. Um, um, who's great? Another great uh, actor. Why is he here? <laughs> exactly. I mean, like this. This may be the biggest head scratcher for me. Is is. I mean, this is one of the dudes from La Femme Nikita, right? Like, yeah. Like this is. And Goldeneye. Like, and, yeah. I mean, he was in Goldeneye for God's sakes. It's it just, you know, he's, he's just one of those like supporting actors that has just enough cred to be like, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. Yeah. But he doesn't, I mean, you know, he had done American films before he was in the aforementioned uh, bad boys uh, as a small part, you know, like, so he, he'd obviously dabbled in these kinds of films, but you know, he, I knew him mostly from his, his Luke Besson work. Cause he was in yeah. a ton of Luke Besson movies in the nineties, but he's here as another physicist. And they really put a lot of like the, Oh, I'm doing this for my family on him. And so he's just a huge downer every time he's on screen because he's all like, oh, my two daughters say they are. Well, you and know. you know, this, I mean, it, it's so telegraphed. This movie's so predictable right. that it's like, well, he's going to eat it. Right. I mean, of course if, he if, is. You, if you're one of those people that has the whiteboard with the string on it and you're like keeping track, like you put the you put the red X over his face first. It's like, oh, he's definitely dead. You can't talk maybe, about your family in a disaster know. movie. No, no. The moment that you reference the fact that you have a family that we have, we do not see on screen, you're toast. You're dead, right? Um, you know, he's good in the capacity, again, that he is given, but there just ain't a lot going on here. Um, then we have Richard Jenkins, uh, who, 
I mean, this, you. I think you could give this role to anybody. I think you could grab someone off the street, just go down to an Arby's and just like grab a dude wearing jeans, sitting in the lobby, staring into space, and they could play the character that Richard Jenkins plays in this yeah, movie. It's like just be, just be sort of a dick, just like a military. Bog standard military dick like that is and you just can't wait is. to blow everything up you can't wait right. to destroy the earth right he, and you have a it, big military secret it's that character in every movie, every movie. Just standing next to the button to be like can i push it am i pushing it when am i pushing it where will the nuclear bombs yeah. go just like he's LD. he's the guy at, at mission control who's staring at the monitors just waiting for his his button pushing to start. He's got a manila folder. It's got secrets in it. And he is That's not right. going to share them. He's not going to share any of those secrets. Not until he has to. Even though one of them is at a facility that apparently has a staff of 500 people. <laughs> <laughs> Huge military secrets at this facility in Alaska with 500 people in it all wearing the same tie. Very yes. well guarded. It looks like the scene from Cabin in the Woods. What is going on? <laughs> um and so he's i mean jenkins is always good he is a reliable dependable solid supporting actor who will consistently deliver high qualities of content but he is wasted here um but perhaps the the person to get the shortest stick in this movie and they still found a way to beat him with that short stick is dj qualls yeah. Playing a uh, rat. The hacker. The hacker. And hack I the planet. Hack the planet, yo. <laughs> I'm going to need a high speed internet connection and some hot pockets. Me. Oh, oh God. <laughs> um, now, I mean, this is. He had basically only done two movies before this. He was in. He, he had his, you know, moment in the sun and road trip. But of course. Then he did his his solo starring the new guy, and then he made this. And I don't I don't know what he's doing in this movie. I just don't. Um, the, the reason for why they need a hacker man is <laughs> is to control misinformation, right? To basically convince the world that there isn't a problem. So that no one freaks out and does something truly terrible while they're trying to fix the death of the planet. But and so he's controlling the flow of information on the net. Which we don't PC. really ever see or comprehend in the movie. No. He's just not there. Like that could have actually been interesting. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I would have. Act I mean, if this movie had any understanding of how networks functioned or what the internet was i could see this being like a really interesting moral conundrum for a hacker right like because hackers by default at least as we would understand them in 2003 you know after 1995's hackers hack the planet um is that they want information to be free and open right yeah. like that's that they break systems to expose that kind of thing and so now here's this hacker who's being forced into a position to control the information. Like I could actually see that character struggling with that and then finding small ways throughout the film to let information leak. Like, oh, 
you know, there's going to be an EM disaster in San Francisco. I'm going to leak that to the press without anybody knowing so that they can get people off the bridge. Like that instead, we interesting. Just, instead, we just don't see him for like an hour. No. And he just <laughs> eats hot pockets. Bam. <laughs> right. It's like, oh my God. Um, and, and then of course, you know, they pin all of the freedom of information stuff on him at the end, which is, is equally ridiculous. So I, I just feel bad for him. I mean, I, I'm, I don't hate DJ Qualls. I, I think he has a very particular delivery and performance style. He's got a little he, niche. He was um, really, really great and was probably one of my favorite things in The Man in the High Castle, the TV show. He was fantastic. Okay. He was I still haven't, haven't gotten that deep into that show. So that's, that is good to hear. Um, I really like... I, I, I watched like the first two seasons of that uh, sci-fi zombie show. Uh, what was it? It was Z something. This is very silly. Z Nation, I guess. Oh, okay. And he was in that, and he played kind of like a guy stuck in a, like, I don't even know, radio tower station, you know, and he would like help people connect in for, you know, connect people, different groups, because he had this powerful equipment or whatever. And he was fine in that. He played like a DJ character. It was silly, but whatever. Um, you know, so he's he's been around. He does mostly TV these days. Um, you know, but but here the character is confused. What they're doing is confused. It doesn't make a ton of sense to have somebody doing this when all of this stuff's supposed to be secret anyway. And I'm like, and how do you keep these natural disasters secret exactly? Right? Like <laughs> Like, how do you convince people that two million birds didn't just die instantly in central London and murder a bunch of people in a double-decker bus? How do you cover that up exactly? It's just some swamp gas. Yeah. <laughs> it was a horrible release of swamp gas. Um, so it just, it, it's it's bad. He's they, they try to hang some humor on him, and he doesn't really nail it. Um, again, this film just feels very cut up. It feels very sort of haphazard. Like the scenes were shot without much consideration for what came before or after just a lot of sort of maybe this spun out of control, right? Like this, this production was just too much for the team to manage it efficiently, which again is another thing that, you know, directors like Michael Bay say what you want. Michael Bay is a, a rigorously efficient film director. He doesn't go over budget. He doesn't go over his days. He gets his shots. He moves. And and movies like this, in some ways, that's more important than having like a really clear vision, right? I'm sure yeah. it helps, but you know, it's it's just one of those things. These are just these are, are massive logistical projects that you have to sort of wrangle into existence. And I, I don't know if Emil, you know, had the ability to do that. Maybe, maybe not. Um, okay, so I guess let's let's just jump into the film. I don't really know if I want to go scene by scene. I think this would be infuriating to talk about scene Agonizing. by scene, even Ag- though every single scene has something that you can make fun of <laughs> in it. Like uh, we were we were talking back and forth. We got started, and I was like, the the thing that makes this movie great to watch is that you know, and we've talked about this before. Making a movie is really as with any creative enterprise, writing a story drawing a picture, whatever is about making choices at key moments, right? Like it's just a succession of choices. I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and Oh, that didn't work. I'm going to go back and try this. And, and you just kind of flow through those choices and hopefully achieve an end product. 
this is an example where every single one of the choices that was made was the wrong choice. Just wrong. Like they had other choices in front of them that they could have taken that were better and they didn't. And this is what you get. Um, and for that alone, it is remarkable. Like truly kind of a rarity in film. Like it's, it's rare to see a movie this inept released on this scale. You know, like it just doesn't happen that often. And, and that's kind of, that's kind of amazing, right. Uh, in and of itself. So, uh, you know, as, as we said, the film opens as all of these movies do with a sort of random, somewhat unprompted disaster. Um, you know, cause we have to establish stakes, right? Disaster movies at their core are about building stakes and those stakes have to feel real. And those stakes have to have a human cost associated with them, right? Like if it's just birds dying, you're not going to get anybody's blood pumping, right? Like it, birds can die too. Sure. But we need, we need human stakes. So we actually open on a, a boardroom where a guy's walking in to make, and he's like, let's make some money. And then he just heals over dead. Just whoop, just face planted on a glass table, which again, with a little tweaking to some of the sound effects could have been a laugh. <laughs> like, I laughed because <laughs> like, I, I didn't understand what was going on. Why did we start precisely. the movie this way? What, what are we doing? And then we get a, a bit of a wonder, right? Uh, and you could tell they were very proud of this, this tracking crane shot where we see what's it called? World green day. Is that what it's called? It's yeah. Something like that. <laughs> it immediately made me think of that bullshit festival at the end of Spider-Man one <laughs> where Macy Gray is performing. It was like, oh, what bullshit festival is this? Cause they can't call it, you know, like Arbor day or whatever. They have to come up with some other stupid name because the copyrights and trademarks and shit. Um, but yeah, it's, it's some kind of like world green day celebration that just happens to be right outside this boardroom where this guy's about to make $3 million. Take from that what you will. And, and, and we pan through and we see that there's just a bunch of people who are now dead, right? It's like a dude hanging off a carousel. It's his body just slowly being dragged. There's crashed cars in the streets, buses stopped and flipped over. I mean, just, and, and what we've, what we find out is that there's been a magnetic event and anybody with a pacemaker in the range of this magnetic event just died instantly. <sighs> I don't think that's how pacemakers work. No, no. Uh, pace, pacemakers keep your heart beating in time when it detects an arrhythmic action, right? So it detects, oh, my heart is beating improperly. It's going to, you know, it's going to put me back on track. It doesn't make your heart beat. So no. losing it would not stop your heart. No. As far as I'm aware, right? I could be wrong. <laughs> you see, um, magnets make your heart explode. <laughs> magnets make your heart explode. ICP knew it from the start. How do they work? Ask no, the man. juggalos. Um, and, and so then we hard cut from that to an oscilloscope inside of Aaron Eckhart's uh, freshman sleepy time morning geophysics class. And I, I heard this scene described by an actual physics professor as like 
the lecture that you slept halfway through in your freshman year of college and barely remember <laughs> like you like maybe you remember him having some rocks set up but you don't remember any of the things that he said or what he <laughs> mentioned yeah um, i had a bunch of classes like that oh yeah it totally just, and, this, and so this, this still felt mm. i don't know this didn't feel like a real class though it, it felt no. like movie yeah. college it's maybe movie like college. a very egregious example of movie college. Yeah. Hello. Welcome to movie college where all <laughs> students are actors and everybody's 10 years older than they should be. Um, yeah, it's, it's just ridiculous. He's playing trumpet into a rock, which, you know, I mean, yes, if you pass sound waves through a rock and you have a oscilloscope hooked up to the rock, you'll see the sound waves change. Durr, right? Obviously. But this is like a zany example movie. Cause this isn't the first time that we have someone giving a ridiculous example, like simile, comparison like it's like this this mm. happens when you do this like they have all these little um demonstrations just on hand even though that would them, never happen i always call them star trek similes yeah because this is what star trek does to explain really complicated topics and then you and then you just have data come in the back it's like an exploding balloon right or 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 Jordy shows up and he's like hmm it's sort of like if the beam passed through the water you know, and it's like this this little thing that the writers know they have to do because people in the audience are stupid, <laughs> right? Like that's the it's like yeah. they're not going to get this, so we're going to to explain it three different ways in increasingly simple terms to make sure they understand how it works. Because we are setting up in this little scene the whole concept of using sonic waves to travel through rock, which is eventually what the ship is going to do with lasers or something who knows. Right. But it's like a simple concept. We need you to know it. And so we're going to do it with movie college. And then, um, the guy that's in every movie as weird agent man shows up in his, um, excuse me, Dr. Jones scene to, uh, to cart Aaron Eckhart away because they need his specific, there's no one who can do what Aaron Eckhart. Specific information, yes. Um, and I feel bad that I'm blanking on this guy's name. It's Aaron something as well. He he's in a ton of Michael Bay movies. He's always like the general in Michael Bay movies, right? Like I think he was the guy with the axe in the first Transformers <laughs> who was cutting the hard lines so they couldn't hack <laughs> them. <laughs> Cut the hard lines, and he just grabs an axe and starts chopping up a wire or something. Um. He's very good, but he's only in this briefly. Uh, but, you know, we this movie is such a shadow of other films, right? Like all of the scenes like kind of come from other places. And this, like I said, this is like the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Jones, we need a minute of your time, you know, kind of thing. But they they played a little harder than that. Um, so they bring Aaron Eckhart in for reasons. And he's just he's so shabby, like. I mean, I'll say it again. Like Aaron Eckhart is a like ridiculously attractive man by, by most standards. Like, and I'm not saying that. Yeah. I mean, like he is the most like ideal form of a square jawed leading man that it probably hurts him because they're like, there's (laughs) dozens of him. (laughs) Like I imagine it actually had a negative impact on his career at some point because people are like, I'm sorry, man. There are like 2000 of you waiting outside this door to audition for this part. Square jawed, blonde haired, blue eyed. Like, you know, it just, it it's in modern Hollywood. I could actually see this being a hindrance. I don't agree. I I like Aaron Eckhart. I think he's a 
pleasant enough human being to look at on, on film. But here, like the way that they're just like artificially like screwing up his hair, he's his just like all jacked up. Yeah. It's just like, you can't make this dude look like a regular dude. Like you can, you can make him a regular dude by other means than by putting him in a sweater that's too big and, and ruffling his hair, right? Like just make him kind of awkward and a bit of a nerd, put some glasses on him, like just is whatever. And, I, and it just doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't, it didn't work for me at all. I never at once believed there, that this there are guy was to, to do that and do it well. Like, okay. What was the, the, um, uh, the Netflix movie about had Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence and it was a disaster movie. Oh, don't look don't, up. Don't don't look up. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio was was the heartthrob of my generation. I I didn't Absolutely. quite understand it, mm-hmm. but I mean if you asked any girl Leonardo DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio, just his face, his everything. He's so gorgeous. He's so great. Mm-hmm. They made him look Every bit the dumpy college professor just oh, by 100%. Yeah. Just by selling it a little bit more by actually like making him ugly. But they didn't really try to make Aaron Eckhart look ugly in this. They didn't really try to make him look like a schlubby college professor. They're just like, I don't know. We didn't iron your shirt. <laughs> right. That means you're a schlub. That's right? enough. Right. Yeah. Uh, like I said, it's 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 a lot of again. A choice could have been made the wrong choice was made. Like it's just, it's the constant refrain in my head for this film. Um, You know, it's just, it's, it's an unfortunate thing because I think Aaron Eckhart could actually, and he could lead a movie like this. You've got to do more. Yes. But not this character. No. Played by Aaron Eckhart. Like there should be another character who is like, rugged scientist man like he's out in the yeah. field like right? make like him a scientist but don't try to convince me that he's he's asleep on the couch type of scientist <laughs> right <laughs> i mean like not. The, I, again i hate to come back to indiana jones but I, you know that there's a reason why that character works is that we the first context that we see indiana jones in is raiding the tomb and stealing the golden idol then we transition back to teacher indiana jones right and yeah, you know, he's his hair's combed, he's wearing the goofy round glasses. It's more of a, a Clark Kent on. Superman kind of thing. Exactly. That's what this character if you're gonna have this guy be the lead of your movie, that's more what is he needs to be, in my opinion. Right? Like I want to believe that the schlubby college professor could be the hero. Yeah, <laughs> that all you'd need is a cool hat. Yeah, just a cool hat. <laughs> And Hillary Swank behind you or at your side, whatever. But it just it's his character is is fundamentally broken. And at a this is the character there is no reason why this would be the guy that would actually get in the ship and go down and do this. He has no expertise that we are shown that would mean that he should be in that in that position. Right? Like he needs more. And and it's just one of those like Maybe they were thinking that it would be the the whole, you know, the, the regular guy rises to the top sort of thing, because that is a common trope in these movies, right? I mean, again, in 2012, John Cusack, the ostensible hero of the film, is a limousine driver. 
I, I know he started off as something else, but when we meet him in the movie, he's driving limousines, you know? So I, I, I get that, you know, that's supposed to be the thing, but lest we forget that in Twister, you know, Bill Pullman is like a weatherman, right? He's like on TV and he's fancy. They kind of make fun of him for that, but he's also this like highly skilled, proficiently technical individual. So that there's a balance that needed to be struck. And this was not the balance that made it work for me. I still think Aaron Eckhart's an engaging person to watch. We'll talk about some of his scenes here a little bit later in the film where, but just the, maybe overall, they should have reined it in. But yeah, just the overall character design didn't work Mm-mm. at all. And it did kind of take me out of it. Cause I'm like, I don't believe any of these people would do these things for a living. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's miscasting for the part is written is, is really what's happening. So then we're introduced to, you know, they're taken to this secret military facility. So I think we're supposed to believe that all the bodies died in all the pacemaker people died in Boston. I think that's where that's happening. We're told that Aaron Eckhart teaches at the university of Chicago, which is in Chicago. So that means that they ferried him from Chicago to Boston, which admittedly is not a super long trip by plane. But I mean, we're talking like five or six hours at least. And they also had Serge because it's it's equal parts Serge, Serge and Serge throughout the film, uh, <laughs> even though, you know, it's just Serge. Uh, <laughs> Serge. Uh, I, I kept getting flashbacks to Bronson Pinchot and. Yeah, Serge <laughs> in, in Beverly Hills Cop. No, it's Serge. Um, so they, they fly these two guys out to Boston, theoretically, to look at these bodies and to determine what has happened. Because as geophysicists, they would know. <laughs> I, think there are, I think there are medical doctors that do autopsies to determine how they died. Um, but uh, but no. Aaron Eckhart... No, no. I mean, they just would lay all these bodies out on a table in a like school gymnasium and wait for these two guys to show up to determine what killed them. Yeah. Um, but of course, I think the movie makes it clear that they kind of know what kills them, but they want to know what triggered it. Uh, and Aaron Eckhart figures it out immediately just because it's them there. He says, well, you asked us here, so it must be a problem with this. If it's a problem with this, then they all had pacemakers and that's why they died. And the guy's like, ding, ding, ding. You did it. Was it anything? Do you think it was anything weird? And they're like, I don't know. And he's like, all right, we're done here. I'm like, okay, you just theoretically, theoretically Serge came from France. And you brought this guy from Chicago. You're going to talk to them for 30 seconds and then be like, all right, thanks. Thanks for confirming what we already knew. Appreciate it. Have a great this, day. I mean, this was before <laughs> Skype. It's true. So maybe now this would have been like a FaceTime conversation. And and maybe maybe this is, I mean, you know, the writers have staunchly defended this film in the years following uh, for being more accurate than people give it credit for. And I'm, I'm not here to debate that. But maybe this is truly what the film is about, which is government waste, right? Maybe that's <laughs> what they were really writing about. It's like, let's show a government that just wastes money. Um, and in that anyway, case, I agree. hundred percent. Like Richard Jenkins is just wasting money. Um, but of course this leads to a larger problem, right? They, 
Aaron Eckhart can't let it go. He, he suspects that something is happening. And so he goes back to the university of Chicago into his little lab with his little research assistants. And, and they are going to run some tests and model the planet inside of a computer and then use that model to analyze stuff. And they start doing these sciencey things. I, I, okay. So we're big MST3K fans, obviously. (laughs) And, um, you know, of course, one of our favorites is MST3K, the movie. And, and one of the best jokes in that movie is when the scientists are doing science work and, and Crow T robot is just like, Oh, turn up the flash Gordon sounds and <laughs> put some more science in that. And, and this movie is full of, of those moments where it's like, put some more science sounds over there, have them do the science things. <laughs> and it just kind of keeps happening where they're just like doing things that appear scientific, but aren't really explained. Uh, but while all that's happening, we have a scene that I remembered from my first watch through of this, but watching it this time, I caught a little thing that I don't know if it made me appreciate it more, but it certainly helped me understand what they were doing. Um, and so the, it, it's, we're in, I guess it's Trafalgar square in London and, and the birds go nutso birds crashing out of the sky, breaking buildings, knocking over double decker buses, jumping into the laps of bus drivers and making them freak out, <laughs> making them, making them say things like, Oh my word. Good show. Oh. <laughs> good show, old chap. <laughs> Never well, saw it coming. My favorite, uh, my favorite is, is that, like, this is pandemonium. This is absolutely insane with <laughs> all insane, the fucking yeah. birds, and yet there's still a bus driver who's like, "What's all this then? <laughs> What's going on? These people out in the streets?" And then yeah. a bird and he's just flies into driving. his window, and he's like, "Oh, what the fuck?" <laughs> It's like, like there's people running through the street, obviously running in front of his bus and he's just trucking along full speed. And then all of a sudden a bird flies in the window and he's like, oh, what's this then? Uh, it's <laughs> like he it's, couldn't figure out from like the thousands of dead birds in the road. He couldn't figure out from nope. all the people running back and forth. Absolutely no way for him to understand what's happening. Uh, but the thing that told me that they knew what they were doing is, uh, of course, you know, to to heighten the human drama of a you know, huge moment like this where so many things are happening. Of course, we have to follow, you know, a single family that is visiting Trafalgar Square with their camcorder and recording, you know, important life moments. And so we follow this family, the mom in the red coat, very Spielberg, the mom in the red coat. And they wind up in this, this uh, building that is, is a theater and you can see it in the back, sort of obscured. It's in the, t- the upper right of the frame that it is the Theatre du Maurier, uh, which, of course, if, if you know the original story of the birds by Daphne du Maurier, um, then uh, you will know <laughs> that boys. she was the writer of The Birds. And and they were just doing The Birds. That's all they were doing. They were just yeah. doing a, they were doing a bird's. And, and, uh, uh, it's pretty lame, honestly. It's, a, you know, we, we actually watched that not too long ago, uh, with my kids just to sort of introduce them to Hitchcock and sort of what he was up to and, and, you know, get some of the other stuff later. But, um, it's just, it's remarkable how well that movie does the things that it does, right. And turns scares or, or is able to you know, sort of eke scares out of stuff that 
might not be scary in different circumstances. And this isn't scary at all. It's just chaos. No. And, and, and it's not, not really even readable. good chaos. No, it's not, not interesting. It's not even shot all that interestingly. No. <laughs> um, and so all this is going on on earth and, and then we cut and we're finally introduced to, to Hillary Swank's uh, character of Beck as well as Bruce Greenwood's characters at, at the same time. And so they're up in space and they're navigating down and, you know, basically the computer, as we mentioned before, gets the coordinates wrong and they find themselves instead of landing at their apportioned landing site, they are coming down you know, pretty much right in Los Angeles. Beck makes some quick calculations, does a little bit of math and, and figures out that they can land in the L.A. River uh, because if we have a movie that takes place in Los Angeles and we don't have a shot of the L.A. River, I guess the L.A. It, Chamber of Commerce well, comes and cuts your balls off in your sleep. Yeah. Because well, there's a there's a not showing the L.A. River tax. Uh, it must be. Yeah, there must be some kind of fee. Maybe that's how they pay for the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And maybe that's it. It's like, oh, you didn't put the L.A. River in this movie. No, I'm sorry. That's going to be two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, we're going to need some more money. You know, so long story short, they land successfully. We get a lot of shots of Bruce Greenwood just handling that stick. Just mm. He's got his hands on the stick and he's just, he's, just, he's I'm sorry. Um, I, I, I actually had it paused next to me and it was just, and I paused it right on this spot of Bruce Greenwood, just like holding on to the control stick. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's probably not. Should we be seeing this? Like, <laughs> um, but anyway, so the, I, I guess it's at this point that I'll mention that, um, Boy, 2003 was a rough time for the old visual effects. Holy cow. Um, a transitional period. A liminal yeah, space, if you will. It was a, a liminal <laughs> space between good and bad. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it, it was bad. Uh, the, the, CG, the CG shuttle in this like has the wrong lighting on it. There's, there's no shading on it. Um, yeah. It's... All of these special effects mm. look like Linkin Park music videos, which also were coming out around the same time. It doesn't even matter, really. Yeah. I mean, that's what exactly. you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, and, and unfortunately, it stands out more because while there is certainly, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned in our, our you know, movie recap that there's some pretty dodgy visual effects at the end of Black Panther 2. But a lot of that now has to do with human forms, right? Like full body digital doubles, that kind of thing. Like there's, we're still just not great at those, but cars, machines, you know, aircraft buildings, like that stuff is pretty much solved at this point, unless you just do not have the budget to do it. And so like these kinds of visual effects stand out far more now because we've seen them done vastly better dozens and dozens of times. Um, so again, I don't blame the core for this. It's, it's quite literally a byproduct of the time and budget. I would assume because this was not a huge budgeted film. I, I will say that it, it, that maybe it's only saving grace is that it was only 85 million in 2003, which in 2003, that's not a lot. Um, you know, by comparison, Day After Tomorrow, which just came out literally less than a year later, uh, cost 125, right? 45 more million dollars. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not to say that it got them that much further, but 
But it I did don't look think better. They had a lot to like work. the effects it did look better. Yes. Looked better. So, you know, I think there is a component of that here that they were somewhat budget constrained and unfortunately as the film goes on it just gets worse. Um like do, I don't know what the inside of our planet looks like, right? I mean like I've I've seen the pictures of you know, the, the drawings of like, Oh, you've got the mantle and the core and you know, like I've seen those, but I just don't think it would look like how it looks in this movie. Like, I really don't. And, um, no. and it just doesn't work at all. So, uh, then we're, you know, uh, all right. So moving through, we're, we're quickly introduced to Stanley Tucci. And that kind of is the last piece of, of this puzzle really. Because uh, Tucci is our, I mean, they keep comparing him to Einstein in the movie. Like he has all these posters behind him. They're like modern day Einstein. And it's like, no, it's Carl Sagan. Like it's, it's Carl Sagan. Like, stop it. Like, they're <laughs> they're trying to do this weird mashup of like every famous science guy. Mm. And they don't even have to be the same type of science guy. Just, you know, any dude you've ever seen on TV who they said he was a science man. Yep. That's who this That's is. Him. That's who this is. He could be that guy. And, and so there's a little bit of secrecy introduced. And, and what we ultimately are told over the course of the film is that he was in charge of or, or head of a project several years previously called Project Destiny. That was, and, and I'm, I very loosely remember exactly what, but basically it was supposed to, to be a tactical weapon that it was about like targeting earthquakes, right? Like they could create an earthquake in an enemy country to cause like mass destruction, right? So like, instead of dropping a nuclear bomb, we could just earthquake Afghanistan out of existence or something, right? Like that's what it was supposed to be. And so they were shooting sound waves or something, a tectonic plate weapon of some kind that would cause earthquakes even if it was in a place of the world that maybe didn't have like a tectonic plate there. But anyway, uh, and, and, and so they, they had this thing and they tested it and it might be their fault that it stopped, that it stopped spinning. And that's like supposed to be this big conspiracy secret thing in the film, which I did not understand why that would be, if 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 the core has stopped rotating, right, like you you know that now, why would hiding the fact that you're the one responsible? How would that change anything? Like that was my question. I was like, okay, well, all of this is secret anyway. Everybody's been sworn to secrecy. I assume they've signed NDAs or whatever. How would not? How would telling them, oh, we might have done this, have affected anything? But yet it's paid, it's sold as this like big secret. I, I Emotions running high in, I, in the government. I guess. Yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of little factions. When faced with a global extinction event, you've got a lot of people trying to save their own ass. And that's what, that's what you want to see. That's really. what matters. Yeah. My like, ass. You wanna, it's like, I, that's one of the things I love. Because when we get to the end of this movie, Stanley Tucci is very much done with everything. He's like, just take me home. I'm done with this. I, I want to go back. And I'm like, but if, if you do, you're all dead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like in like a year or, or six months or something, whatever. But you're all dead. 
So why? Why would you go back and die then instead of just now? And because I would be able to smoke cigarettes. Cigarettes and, and be fitted for a new wig. And that's what I want. That's, how I'm, <laughs> that's where I'm happy. Um, so yeah. It, and so all of this begins to develop very quickly. And I, I cannot express how tropey this movie is. Like, even with where disaster movies gone, this almost like set the tropes in place. Like, like the bricks were already in position, but the core was the mortar that said like, these are the pieces that must be in place for this to proceed. <laughs> it's remarkable. Like, you know, again, the, the shabby sort of regular man lead the, the plucky uh, woman who supports him, even though he doesn't deserve it. The, the, uh, you know, sort of like begrudging, aging done with it scientist the gung-ho military guy the all the, of the things that roland emmerich gave to us yeah this i mean he throws them in our face and the <laughs> the darkened rooms lit from above where men and panels have conversations like it's it's just all of it it's even the dumb like the dumb, simple illustrations, which I, I there are, as you mentioned, there are dozens of them in this film. This characters who always have the appropriate materials to efficiently explain the scientific concept while they it's need like to. It's like a peach. So, and that's exactly it's, what I was going to talk about. The peach. Uh, you, you could explain it. It's uh, well, I mean, they use there's conveniently peaches. Like, I just want to point out that like peaches are like never in season. I mean, they're rare fruits, yeah. But they just so happen to have like some very fresh, delicious peaches in this like conference room with Why? all these military guys. With like this hot. military conference room, it's like, well, General Jones really loves peaches. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta sure keep we fresh got, ones in in the conference sure room at all times, or he will throw a fit. Um, now, ironically, I was looking at the IMDb trivia and it wasn't a peach. It was an apple and they stuck the thing in the middle of it because they couldn't find a peach that worked. And and like uh, you would think that that better. would be your first clue. Don't do this <laughs> because it's make, stupid. Make and everybody's going to go like, where the fuck did they get a peach? Why are there peaches in the conference room? Those should be in the break room. <laughs> and there are yeah. other there are other fruits they could have used, I guess. Like, oh, why not? Sure. Or, or you know, why don't or they use an avocado? Just, yeah, a, an avocado or just a whiteboard and have them draw a picture. Like, what difference does it make? Because we want to be original and we want something that really, really represents the earth. <laughs> we don't want to be like all them, all them assholes that keep poking two holes in a piece of paper and putting them together to explain and, wormholes. You know, that's what it reminded <laughs> me of. And, and my thing is that I know all science fiction movies because that's what this is at this point they're just they're explaining a science fiction concept this is science fiction this is there's no realism to be had after five minutes into this yeah and like i realized that i have a limit with this trope and it's and it's one time in a movie you're allowed to do this one time you're allowed to have some ridiculous metaphorical explanation of how something scientific works but there ha but my condition is that there has to be someone who needs to understand it that way that's not the audience. Mm -hmm. And this movie just goes beyond. No one in that room needed any help understanding 
the Earth's core. I, I just don't. I don't believe that. I, mean, I don't believe any of them needed a visual metaphor for what the inside of the Earth looks like. Because we're not talking about like dumb these are, grunts. These aren't children. These aren't these are soldiers. Children. Yeah. These are like admirals. These are these are people who who didn't get where they were by the virtue of being stupid. No, wait, so wait, wait. So you're telling me that our planet <laughs> isn't you just mean it's a not hollow, filled with ice cream? Is it a hollow rock full of gummy bears? What the hell, Jimmy? Next what thing you'll tell us me? is that the sun's a big ball of gas. <laughs> <laughs> that may be where the scene took a turn. Like I was kind of okay with him just like holding up the peach and being like, there's a core and then there's stuff around the car. I was like, all right, fine. Yes. But then when, when he has Stanley Tucci come up with him, and hold the peach on a fork so that he can then take like a bottle of hairspray and a lighter to set it aflame to illustrate what the sun baking the planet will be like. like are they using like, okay. a scientist prop kit or something? Like, I just carry these with me because I'm a teacher. So you never know when you're going to need to set a peach on fire. <laughs> I mean, that was where I was like, okay, you guys don't need to do this, right? Like, I think they get the concept. And then, like, even he dumps the burnt peach into a glass oh, of water. Oh, so stupid. It's just, it's, it's, again, there were a lot of choices for how that scene could have gone down. The wrong one was selected. And, you know, we always talk about the, the Event Horizon example, but, like, the reason that that was in the movie is that that's kind of a difficult concept to oh, yeah. understand. Like, it's, it's, it's more esoteric than... The Earth's core. <laughs> right. Like that's that's sixth grade, you know, sixth grade science, um, you know, whereas something like multiverses or. Yeah. Um, you know, these the are. Gravity these are larger, yeah. These are larger sort of more challenging concepts to wrap your head around. And they're things um, that don't exist. Exactly. And that I, I really think that you've hit the nail on the head. I think the problem with this movie is that it wants you to believe that it's real. When they have verged so hard into pure science fiction that it, it it cannot sustain plausibility as a serious scientific enterprise, and if they had just leaned into that, if they had just sort of said like, okay, we're we're now telling a fun science fiction story, a la Jules Verne, you know, Journey to the Center of the Earth or whatever, like I I Go really off. think. Yeah, just do it. Just just do it. It's fine. I mean, like, because, and, and here is the thing, and I remember this, when Avatar came out, people threw a fit over the fact that the substance that they were mining for was referred to as unobtainium. Which is a real concept. Like, it we do joke thing. that in science fiction and in, like, speculative scientific fields that whatever this material would be, it's called unobtainium or it's called wish alloy or, you know, some other goofy name. And it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. It's, it's quite, it, you know, it's literally the MacGuffin. Like we yeah. don't know what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just the thing that we have that lets us do the thing. And, and this movie, to my knowledge is the first time that unobtainium was utilized as a term. So I, I, I really, i I don't feel bad for James Cameron. James Cameron's doing just fine. Yeah. But he, he definitely blots his tears with all of his money. 
Oh man, just piles, piles and piles. Um, but yeah, he, this movie is, is sort of unabashedly and not even with an attempt to explain it surprisingly, just they have unobtainium and the unobtainium that they use to, to drill to, into the earth allows them to withstand the impossible pressures because here again, here is where the science just goes completely off the rails. Like space travel you know, in the vacuum of space, you have a, a pressure problem, right? That's what kills you in space, the cold and the pressure. Um, but going down into the earth would actually be greater pressure than what you would encounter in space uh, pretty, pretty substantially. And so they have to have a way for a craft to make it to the center of the earth. And so the only way to do that is to invent this what does he say that the metal actually gets stronger the more pressure is applied to it or some bullshit like that. I I don't know, but you know, we get the great scene where Delroy Lindo and again, Delroy Lindo is great. He's, he's doing what he can with this not good script, but he, he sort of like tries to sell them on, you know, how long it's going to take and how much resources he would need. And they're like, how big of a check do you need to, you know, like the typical, Again, the trope, right? Like, oh, this is going to take 12 years and $75 billion. You take a personal You have a day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We need it next week. How many people? (laughs) How much money? Um, And and then, of course, they do it. And and so this section of the movie was, is where you could start building those personal relationships that you kind of need to build stakes for the, the third act. And the scenes that they choose to share to show this team coming together and sort of building the equipment and learning how to fly it and all this different stuff is just wasted. Like it's all wasted time. Like the scenes themselves are not, you know, if you look at them in a vacuum are not the worst, but they do very little to help you feel like these people have actually gotten to know each other. Um, of course we do get introduced to DJ Qualls right around this time too. And he's like frying all of his hard drives and burning CDs in the microwave and just hacker things, just hacker things, you know, just, just hacker stuff. You saw the matrix, you know what hackers do. They have little, little spots filled with floppy disks and they have to break them because government stuff. It's so silly. Uh, and, and, This movie try, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sweeping shots in this film, right? Big shots that kind of come in and swoop through all these different faces and we get introduced to everybody. And, and like, you're, you're really supposed to like feel something about these moments, right? You could feel like the, the people who are making the movie are like, oh, this is like our hero shot, right? This is like the teams together at last we're, we're doing it. And it, and it just all falls. I feel nothing. Totally. Nothing for these people. (laughs) Like nothing. You know, and again, we get this scene where Aaron Eckhart, he like can't tie his own tie and and he's just like struggling with it. And then Hillary Swank sweeps in and she's like, oh, I was the next karate kid. I can take care of that for you. And it's just. It's just remarkable in its ineptitude. Like if you want to show that Aaron Eckhart is a little bit fumbly and, you know, it's nice to have somebody around that can kind of look after these kind of things for him. I don't know if I mean, he just met. Hillary Swank, like this is their meeting and here she is like fixing his tie and is sort of managing him. And it's just, 
it's just a weird thing to do to the person you've set up for the first hour of your movie as the main character. At, at least for me. I mean, I'm not offended by it. I mean, I, I, I could see in the right hands that this is supposed to be like this sweet meeting where these two people are going to launch into their you know, earth shattering romance, but it doesn't come off that way. No, at all. It, it's just no. awkward. Like er, almost every scene that Hillary Swank is in, in this film is just awkward. She kind of seems like she doesn't want to be there. And like, I, I don't, I don't sit around and, and analyze how actors feel about their own roles because in general, I don't care. Um, yeah. But it, I really just got the feeling like she didn't want to be in this movie and she wasn't interested in what she was doing. Like just a complete disengaging from the character, which is fine. It's a terrible character and this is a terrible movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't <laughs> argue. <laughs> like, yeah, like sure. if I were her, I would hate every minute of this too, but you, you, do get the sense that this must have just been a paycheck. Like I'm going to make money from this and it'll allow me to do much more interesting things that I care about. I mean, it feels like it, uh, you know, again, this is such a weird, I mean, not a weird choice, but it, you know, given how she came on the scene with a, such a, a groundbreaking independent film performance, like boys don't cry, uh, which was dealing with, you know, issues that, I mean, we're, we are still just circling the drain on. We cannot get past this shit. Yeah. And and here, you know, she is coming out of the gate playing this, this you know, trans character. I, I just, this feels like such a step down, like such a step down. And I don't know why, um, you know, she had done the gift after this. She, she was in that we've, we've done the gift on the show. Um, and she was very, it was small and not a huge part, but it, she was very good in it. Um, and as we mentioned, insomnia, you know, it's just like, why, why, like, why, why this, who would do this after these other, like really solid films? It makes you wonder how this movie was sold to its actors. Like, how did they pitch the script to, to all of these like talented people and say, this is going to make you a star. Yeah. Did you see Twister? Yeah. I mean, like, how did they use movies like Twister? Did they talk about Independence Day? Did they say, like, this is going to be your Armageddon? This is going to be like, did they did they go to Hillary Swank in there and, and say, like, did you see Deep Impact? This could be your Deep Impact. <laughs> this could be your Deep Impact. The thrilling, the the impossible Deep Impact. Uh, I don't know. It, it is such a strange thing, but I think you're right. There's just a, a level of disengagement on the part of Hillary Swank that it's, it's knowing her capability as an actress, which would be brought into, you know, incredible focus literally 12 months after this, when she played yeah. million dollar baby or played in million dollar baby. Like it, this role makes no sense. It just, it doesn't make sense for her career. It feels like an aside. It feels like, you know, I had a couple of spare weekends. I'm not in this movie that much. Sure. You know, throw me a million dollars and I'll do it. It's just, it's very strange. Um, like I've always wanted to have my own home. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) I really do need a pool at my Malibu mansion. It's, it's just a very, you know, and, and you know, People like Michael Caine have talked about that, right? You you do the pool movie, you do Jaws four, 
to to get the pool at the summer villa in Italy, right? Like it that is sometimes I mean, movie making is a business. Um and and Hillary Swank certainly understands that as well as any other actor I know. But it it's just knowing what she's capable of, we're not seeing any of that in this movie. And it's it's sad because she might have been able to sort of bring a bit of this up, at least a little bit. Um but again, a lot of these scenes in Act Two, when we're seeing them building the machine and calibrating equipment and testing out the suits, which again, that suit's going to withstand five thousand pounds of pressure. Come on, man! Mm. It's it's made out of trash bags. Like, what are you doing? Um, so yeah, but like we get that scene, and I I wanted to ask you about this scene in particular because when watching it, I was so bewildered by its progression that I, I really didn't understand how someone could write it. And it's the one where he's like calibrating the beam to shoot through like the lead block or whatever to, so basically the mapping system so they can see where they're going. And he's trying to like, you know, Oh, this is a solid object. This is, you know, something we can go through. And he's like, you know, working on it and he's like, Oh, I've, I've got this all set up and I'm trying to improve it. And then she, she walks up and she like presses three buttons and she moves a little dial or a, joystick or something and like she fixes it and he's got like magic (laughs) and he's got like two moments where he's like you know i've got that set up exactly the way i need it to be set up please you know please just leave that alone and she just keeps messing with it and and then at the end she's right so he's like you got me hillary oh gosh golly and i'm like why is this dude here if 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 hillary swank can do what he's doing by walking into a room glancing at it and then making all of the requisite adjustments. Why is Aaron Eckhart still a part of this project? It's almost like they could have sent anyone on this mission. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's crazy. It, it's, it's like, okay, again, I think what we're seeing here and, and we don't have to quit, keep belaboring this point. We're seeing here are the, the basic bones of what you're supposed to do when you write a screenplay. Your characters need motivation. They need challenges, confrontations, and conflicts to overcome on the way to their ultimate success, right? And so, like, Hillary Swank's character, she's not good enough to make the hard decisions. Like, every conversation that she has with Bruce Greenwood comes down to, you're not prepared to make the hard decisions. And she's like, yes, I am. And he's like, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. And it's just that. And so then at the end of the movie, guess what? She has to make a hard decision. Serge dies or Serge. Uh, he dies because of her hard decision. You know, so she's learned her lesson. Aaron Eckhart. What is, what does what he is, learn? What is he learning? What is his goal? Like, and, and this is why this movie doesn't work is that they've spent more time with motivations. Like Serge's motivation is to save his family, right? My his family. wife and his two kids. <laughs> My, I am here because of my two daughters. I care about them and I want them to leave. Right? We're, like, we're only making fun of his accent because he's French. Yes. And, and the French <laughs> deserve it, I guess. <laughs> but so like the, the scientist guy, Brazelton, Delroy Lindo's character, he wants to be remembered, right? He wants people to know that he's the one that built this ship, that it was his passion project, his baby. You know, he's the one that did it. Like it very clumsily establishes this about him, but it still gets it out there that this this is his thing. And he comes back to that in his death sequence and says like, 
It's my baby. If anything's, if anybody's got to take the hit for it, it's going to be me. Which you know? like, it's t- it's I know we'll talk about but, this, but the last little bit of this movie, when people start dying, it becomes a clown car. Like, <laughs> just yeah. insane the way that this movie kills people off. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> Sorry, it is, that's just, that it occurred is to me. remarkable, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, the other place where this movie fails is disaster movies need escalating stakes, right? Like, that's just the nature of the film. Like, you... You can't just open with a bunch of birds dying in Trafalgar Square and say like, oh, well, that's our disaster. You, you need additional disasters. So this one chooses to have a lightning storm in Italy. And and I assume from what we're shown that Rome is basically destroyed, uh, which again calls into question the ability of the American government to control the flow of information. <laughs> if an entire Italian city was destroyed, I don't think even the most capable computer hacker could be like, Oh, we just got to keep that under wraps. We're just not going to let people know that the Coliseum <laughs> exploded. Right? They'll like, never notice. Yeah, we'll or it'll just, take them at least a week. We'll just, you know, cover that part up. Right. Not let them worry about the fact that all of those classic Greek statues and Roman statues are all blown it's up. Fine. It's fine. Um, I just, it, it was such, and, and all of the visual effects in these sequences are awful. Like they are so bad. Lincoln I mean, Park they, music video. When they blow up a when they blow up a model, it's fine. I mean, people have been blowing up models for a hundred years. That's fine. But um, there's like a CG lightning bolt that rips a city, like rips a oh. street apart. Oh, oof! That, that one was, was bad. like needed a couple more days on that one, Steve. That one didn't work out. Uh, but yeah, like you know, so Rome gets destroyed, and that's motivating everybody. I. I do not like that we see all of this destruction happen through like DJ Qualls's computer monitor. And then we, and then he's like, got this, this like glassy eyed, like cry stare where he's like, I'm feeling pain for the world. I'm like, do not put this on DJ Qualls. please. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I mean, we've just, we've spent no time with him. He just shows up for stuff like this. Yeah, so he serves it, it, no other purpose. No, he, he's just there to look at a computer screen, cry occasionally, and eat Hot Pockets. That's his whole purpose <laughs> in this film. I mean, that's mostly what I do with my life. So yeah, I guess yeah, I can't judge wrong. too harshly. I look at computers and eat Hot Pockets and cry. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a really good pastime, actually. <laughs> um, I did like to... Again, there are little things in here that make me wonder if there wasn't like a comedic tone to this movie at some point in the edit. Cause there's that shot when they arrive, eventually they decide they're going to launch the ship from the Marianas trench, right? They're going to drop it into the water so that it just has to go through water until it gets to the trench. And then it can start like going through the rock, which that's only like six miles. I mean, like, so it's, like I mean, I guess that I guess like if you I, were going to do this really stupid thing, I guess there's no other, <laughs> better way that you could do yeah, it. Like, like, sure, why not? Um, but like they all arrive at the platform they're going to launch from and they're doing this whole thing of like throwing everybody's bags out of the the helicopter and it's like Hillary Swank has a bag with all these patches and you know st- stuff on it and then Aaron Eckhart's got like this very normal everyday dude bag and then Stanley Tucci has like a Versace bag 
you know, which again, I guess is supposed to be like, oh, he's this rich asshole kind of thing. But like, why do you do that unless you're telling a joke? I mean, that's like a joke in three parts. Like that's, that's what that is. It, but it's not I don't know. played for laughs. It's, it's I don't know so why, but it weird. made me, it reminded me of the part in the Mortal Kombat movie when, when, uh, Johnny Cage has to take all of his luggage up all those <laughs> yeah. steps. And it's like, oh, yeah. a luggage joke. Because yeah, he's a prissy joke. guy. It's a prissy boy. He likes I his luggage. Uh, uh, again, that's that's a joke, but the movie just runs right over it and doesn't care. Uh, I, I don't know. It's very strange. Like so they, it's, they, it's a movie that's filmed like it's not supposed to be funny at all. But yet the jokes were left in the script, so they filmed them anyway. (laughs) Right. And then eventually there were things happening in those scenes that we had to have in there, so we had to leave the jokes in. Yeah. Uh, You know, so the back half of this movie, I mean, honestly, we've been talking for quite some time now. We've only really covered, in terms of like major plot beats, the first like hour of this movie. Uh, The core is is only two hours, it's like two hours, ten minutes long. But... It, it feels intolerably long at times. Yeah. Like this is a movie that I, I feel for most people, this would be hard to sit through the whole thing without stopping it at some point and just going and doing something else. Um, maybe like if you might get into it enough, but I, I don't think so. Well, this movie feels it's runtime. The first hour yeah. is, is like relatively engaging because you just can't make sense of it. But then right. once, once we're in the core, it grinds to a halt. I mean, oh, that's that's a good pun. Ground to uh, a halt. Um, oh. I should have been a writer on this movie. Uh, <laughs> that's actually true. Yes, <laughs> but it it just I don't know if it's because the movie is now so limited by its own sets, like its own locations, that it doesn't know what to do. So it like, it tries to play out interpersonal drama and there's just none of that to be had. I don't no. feel anything for any of these people. And, and unfortunately from a, from a filmmaking standpoint, we are now reduced to the set inside the Virgil because they call it Virgil, like yeah. Dante's Inferno going down to hell, right? Like, like your guide through, through hell. Yeah. Did uh, you get it? You get it? We, we have references to classical literature. This is a real movie. I read a um, book once. That's right. In college, they made me read one. I hated it, but I remember <laughs> something. Um, so there. So now we're we're stuck. We are inside the ship, which is this tube, and they have like a cockpit area that's on gimbals, and you can tell they just built it on an actual gimbal. Yeah, <laughs> and they just justified it in the story by having it be on a gimbal. Um. And then we have like the control room, right? The standard Apollo 13 dudes looking at screens. And we have not shaken that up in any movie ever. Nope. Control room is the control room. Yeah. It's gotten darker. I would argue that it's, it's much darker. This room. Um, (laughs) They don't have any lights on. (laughs) Nope. Darker, the better illuminated by screens. That's the only way we can do this. And, and it's just, and, and yes, the movie just stops. stops. It like, stops. Like theoretically this should be when the action is picking up, but the opposite is true. And so really what you have are people who now have an extremely simple goal, drill a hole, 
straight down to reach the middle of the planet and then blow a thing up with bombs. That, that's, that is it for the remainder of this film. The, and everything else is a complication that stands in the way of them doing that. And some of those complications are some of the most ridiculous things that I can possibly imagine. Because again, I'm not a scientist. I, I don't study the physical properties of rocks, but I know that our planet is quite large for, to us. I mean, in human scale, our planet is big. I also know that it's, it's quite thick um, relatively certain on that point, but as they're traveling, they they encounter a ge- a geode, uh, a giant, like like city sized geode, full of like amethyst crystals inside, and they don't know what to do about that. So, but they can't turn. They they make a big point. Oh, we can't turn. Turning takes too long got to go straight. It's a straight shot straight to the core. And because we knew it was going to be a straight shot, we didn't think about anything that might be in our way or anything that could cause there's no time. There's no time. (laughs) And so they, they bust through it and, and they obviously have to stop and then have to get out of their little, their little ship because it's hollow in there. Of course, (laughs) the pressure of the planet wouldn't crush something like that. It would just be a little hollow, thing um and again i don't know is this possible maybe i sure but the way anything is possible (laughs) but the way that the movie presents it like they see it on the little scope scanner thing like oh we got this weird thing we have to go through it what is it and they're like i don't know and then aaron eckhart's like oh god it's empty space i didn't program that into the computer (laughs) it's like why i thought you were the guy who knew the stuff thought you were the guy i mean like a lot of this back half of the movie is looking at Aaron Eckhart and being like, I thought you were the guy. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you here? If you're not the guy, (laughs) like, what are you doing here? If you're not the guy? Um, so they crash and they have to go outside. And this just makes no sense because again, pressure, like I cannot, I mean, even I, as a stupid internet man, understand this concept that pressure is high when you go down. Uh, I, I believe there's sure stories. I, I believe there's stories of people who try to go down just in the water part of the planet, <laughs> and the pressure gets so high that it will kill you. <laughs> I find mm. it hard to believe that you would go miles and miles past that point, and then you'd just be able to go outside in a little floppy suit <laughs> and just walk around. <laughs> oh, why not? I mean, again, could I be wrong? Maybe. Do I feel like I am? No. And again, if if this was just a pure science fiction story, if this was set on the planet Kaplua and and like a, the laws of science as they apply to the planet Earth didn't matter, I wouldn't even worry about it. Like, sure, whatever. But like this movie wants desperately to have its cake and be science fiction and eat it too and be science. It's like you can't have both. Right? Yeah. And if you and if you try both, that balance had better be really good. And in this one, it's not. So here's where the, the bodies start piling. The bodies 
hit the floor <laughs> from this point forward because we got six people in this cockpit that need and that's far that too many need to go far too many um again they're not talking about like where they're getting their oxygen from they're not talking about how they're keeping cool inside no wait i take that back they have liquid nitrogen keeping it cool inside the thing which sure 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 yeah sure whatever yep mm-hmm uh, so unfortunately, uh, our, our good friend Bruce is the first to go. Uh, he has a piece of magma uh, <laughs> land on top of his head and go through his suit. Um, now, unfortunately, they refer to it as lava in the film. And, and there were many, many science people who were like, uh, it's lava after it comes out of a volcano. It's magma when it's still in the earth. It is. <laughs> You can almost hear the filmmakers going, do it magma, is it? And like, I hate pedants too. I like every, I think everybody does. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, come on. Didn't I mean, we talked about this in like third grade, the first yeah, time the, you learn about what a volcano is. This is like stalagmite versus stalactite <laughs> stuff, guys. Like, we, we really should have these basic terms handled at this point, I think. Uh, so some some magma falls on his suit. We see, which I find it ironic because like I that's what happens, right? Like a piece of uh, like flaming magma falls on his head, goes to his suit, kills him. But the way we know that he's hurt is we see like a trickle of blood, yeah, come down like his a forehead. like a gunshot. <laughs> I'm like, dude, that magma would be thousands of degrees. <laughs> it would <laughs> melt his face. It would just melt him. It would not cause his forehead to bleed. <laughs> what I, I you know and they 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 really also because okay this is another disaster movie trope right you've got to have moments of beauty right where in in natural disaster movies you know again to look at twister you've got to have the scene where helen hunt and bill paxton sit back and they look at the grandeur of the thing and they're like wow that's some shit right there fucking and, tornado <laughs> Yeah, like oh wow, look at the look at the power of nature, you know, like that kind of bullshit. Yeah. And so this movie is they're inside this amethyst geode, hundred and fifty miles down into the planet or something, and the and it's real sparkly. You see all the sparkles. It's pretty. And, uh, it's so pretty. It's pretty I'm captivated sparkly. by the by the jeweliness. <laughs> and. Uh, and so that they realize that the hot magma is coming from the hole that they drilled into the geode. And now the geode has been compromised. The magma is coming in and they need to get out of there fast. Um, and of course, unfortunately it doesn't, doesn't work like that. And when Bruce Greenwood dies, they seem really unbothered. Yes. And I, uh you know, when it first happened, it'd been a long time since I'd seen the core. Go figure. I didn't feel like watching it again after 2003. Shocker. Um, yeah. That really struck me as, as interesting. Cause I'm like, wow, are they going to be like really calculated about this? Like, I don't, I don't really remember how all these deaths play out. I know they're coming because, you know, we've had like French guy talking about his family. He's probably going to be up next. Um, but they're just, very like, oh, wow, that sucks. <laughs> oh, poor Bruce. Oh, man. And and then they is drag a, Aaron Eckert back, back into the ship. And and we and we get this great moment where they like put 
Aaron Eckert up on the the table and and it's very awkward because he wakes up and he's like, oh, where's what was the guy's name? Bob was it Bob? Yeah, uh, Bob Iverson. Yes. And where, where's where's Bob? Yeah. And then they just fucking leave the room. Yeah, and like, they uh, leave mm, Hillary Swank mm. there to explain where Bob is. And she wasn't even outside the ship. She wasn't even there. Yeah. I mean, and they don't have exterior monitors. They can't see anything. Um, so like and they just, just like, watch yeah, these got, things. As I really got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> we'll yeah. let you handle this. Hillary this, is Swank. A, this is real uncomfortable for everybody involved. So uh, I'm just going to let you take this one. <laughs> you know, I guess it, it's worth noting that Aaron Eckhart does have his like, I guess this is his first like moment of heroic sacrifice where they, they do address the fact that oxygen operates differently in high pressure environments. Right. Um, like it's, it's not as, as, as expansive and effective. And so he, uh, hooks his oxygen up to the welding torch that they're using to cut the crystal and, and sacrifices his own suits oxygen to save the ship. And in doing so, you know, nearly dies. Um, but of course this brings keys to a position where, you know, he's checking things out to make sure that they can still escape. And and then he gets uh, he gets beamed <laughs> by <laughs> some falling. Maybe it's falling rocks. Maybe it's not magma. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think it's just a rock. It's probably not magma. But again, that rock, even if it's just a rock, would be like five thousand degrees because everything in there it. is five thousand degrees. Uh, but he he dies and then falls into the magma, and <laughs> uh, and that's it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we we could break down I mean, every scene in this sequence or in this set is terrible and wasted and directionless. <laughs> it's strange. Our, our next major beat, of course, is that Serge, you know, who's had the he's had the the mark on his back the this whole time. <laughs> the mark of death has loomed large above Serge. Um, he gets a pretty awful death. Like, it's pretty terrible. Uh, but Hillary Swank has to take over driving because, you know, Bob got beaned and she navigates them into some diamonds. Yay. Um, We're rich. And, yeah. And they're all like, I want some. Di-. Like literally a character says that as an ADR piece of dialogue. He's like, I, I want some. Uh, just ridiculous. Like Bob just died. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. This is what he would have wanted good. for all of us to get He'd really want us rich. All to have diamonds, and so like uh, it, it punctures the ship. Okay, this impenetrable ship that gets stronger the more pressure that it's under. She drives past one of these diamonds, and it puts a, t- a teeny tiny hole in the ship, which allows the pressure to escape, and it begins to be collapsed. Like, let me let me see if I can do this. Collapsed like a tin can under the shoe of an angry teenager. <laughs> Did I do it? Did I teach you that one? Um, I think I might have just tuchied myself. <laughs> oh man! But uh, but unfortunately, Serge is back there getting his research notes, which will be very important. <laughs> his his notes will certainly be more important than the person who wrote the notes down. 
and knows the information that the notes contain. Um, but he gets trapped in one of the compartments and it begins to slowly collapse and crush around him. And it, it's nothing against the performance of the actor. Like he's doing the best he can, but it's, it's Aaron Eckhart sitting on a monitor, like watching him like in the room across and, and very upset. Like this is where, this is where Aaron Eckhart's emotionality in this film becomes a little suspect. But so, and and you can tell that he's just in there and they've got kind of like foam debris around him, like a girder and a little like, you know, plastic, you know, and, and they're just pushing it. Like you can tell that there's yeah. probably just like two relatively burly key grips on the other side of the frame, just kind of like slowly pushing this foam stuff on top of him. And I, 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 it's absurd. I, I was supposed to be like emotionally invested and hurt by what I was watching. Instead, I just was giggling uncontrollably as this actor <laughs> did the best that they could to make it seem like they were dying horribly with all of this just foam around him. And Aaron and Eckhart just screaming. Screaming. <laughs> um, I mean, he screamed. Like he did when Harvey Dent's face was being burned <laughs> off. <laughs> Rachel! Do you think Rachel. this was the movie that got him that role? Like Christopher Nolan was sitting in the theater in 2003 and he was thinking, <laughs> I'm going to use him someday. He's going to be in one of my movies. <laughs> Hillary Swank called up Christopher Nolan. She's like, hey, Chris, I remember you from Insomnia. I just got to <laughs> let you know, there's this guy, Aaron Eckhart, just did this movie with him, The Core. I just, he was amazing. <laughs> like there's this scene where he yells Serge in four different ways for like 20 minutes. I think he'd be killer in your next big <laughs> Batman movie. This, uh, this is a message from Hillary Swank. <laughs> I, I just don't, I don't know. Like we're supposed to know that these two guys have been friends for a super long time. Right. That's apparent from the moment that they meet. But he's also just screaming at Beck to like endanger their lives. Right. To ignore the fail safes, knowing that the pressure has been compromised and and like open the door so he can pull Serge out, even though they would all potentially, you know, be at risk. And like these are all scientists. Mm -hmm. And I I just don't believe that. People who who hopefully understand the situation would behave that way. That seems like a liability to to send someone on this mission who might totally. have a freak out and just completely forget everything they ever learned about <laughs> science. It seems it seems a risk. Yeah, um, I and I think I mean there is room for emotion in this scene as Aaron Eckhart like comes to the realization that he's about to lose his friend. Yeah. And, and so to feel the weight of that and to, you know, know that he's, he's witnessing something very, 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 very sad. But the film attempts to spin it into a, into a conflict with Beck for, you know, doing, for following the protocol. And, and this the scene we've been sort of hinting at it really comes directly after this where he charges back into the cockpit and he's like why didn't you why didn't you do what I asked why didn't you release the door 
And I I don't know, man. Like it goes on too long. And and, and he's and too angry. He goes so big. Yeah. It's 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 rare to, again in a Hollywood film to see an actor outside of like your hardcore drop, you know, your marriage stories where Adam Driver's like punching <laughs> holes in walls, you know, to, to as he's you know screaming at Black Widow and and <laughs> Isn't that what I that wish movie that had about? actually been the movie? <laughs> was it that Kylo movie? Ren was punching the wall, yelling at Black Widow. It was awesome. They're really upset about their kids' daycare or something. I don't know. Uh, and and it's just it's rare to see an actor go this hard. And I I respect Eckhart for trying, but again, this is one of those situations where, as an actor, you're relying upon a director to sort of steer you. And make sure that all of this is working. And, and there was nobody behind the wheel here. I not really. I, I think it <laughs> I think a telling component of this scene is that it's it's shot in in single insert reverse shots. Aaron Eckhart and, and Hillary Swank are never shown in a two shot in this sequence. So I think they were acting. I don't know if it was scheduling. I don't know what, but I'm not sure that these two actors are in the same room because she's not responding appropriately to his level and neither is he being calmed by her calm. Yeah. You know, like it's like these two actors, either they perform differently on the day or Hillary Swank wasn't actually in that chair to respond to Aaron Eckhart in that scene. <laughs> like I, I just I don't believe two actors of that skill would fuck up that bad. Because it didn't it you felt know? like they didn't have any emotions toward each other. Like they no. weren't playing off of each other's emotions. Yeah, it really just feels like they filmed those scenes on different days, they were in different places, and then in the edit maybe they were supposed to try and sync them up better and they just they just didn't. Yeah. Um you know, so, but again, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous scene. It's, it's understandable that he would be mad at her for making that choice. But again, as a scientist, as a person who, who understands the stakes of what's going on here, like the planet is at risk. You would think he would understand the larger picture, which he does seem to do in the next scene. Eventually, like, yeah. Like, and, and I that's mean, the thing. It's whiplash. Like these people are, are, are drooling snotting spitting angry sad and then in the next scene it's like well that sure was a wild ride yep moving on you know moving and, on <laughs> like and it's it's just because he wa i mean literally the next scene you know we get a little interstitial with you know back in the control room the darkened lights <laughs> um and then it comes back and and swank is like navigating the ship and some time has passed and Eckhart just comes in, sits down, makes eye contact, nods and smiles like, all right, we're we're on. And I'm like, you literally just screamed at her about how she betrayed you. <laughs> and and now you're just like, well, glad that's over. Let's let's get to it. Let's save the planet. <laughs> Sorry, that happens to me occasionally. <laughs> Again, I, I just I don't know. It, it's it's one of those scenes where I feel like that's kind of on the director. Like he just didn't sink those things in the way that he should have. Um, so then we reach, or we're in the end game. Now they reach the inner core and, or the, the outer core, excuse me, 
don't want to <laughs> my geology for talking about the core. Um, they reach the outer core and they realize that the the core density is different than what they expected. And now their bomb is not going to explode and do the requisite amount of rotational damage to restart the core. So this has all been wasted. They messed up from the start. Everything sucks. Time to die, right? And and so here's where the film just completely, I mean, it's already off the rails. Here's where, like, it's in a, it's rolling through a small, you know, like French countryside village. <laughs> it's a wheel of like, cheese it's out of just, control. <laughs> like, this thing is, like, headed towards the Alps. It's taking back roads. It's running over people on bicycles. <laughs> um, like, this movie is gone. And any strain of credibility that it had, because now they have to problem solve inside of this tube <laughs> in the core of the planet. And it just, again, in a better script with a better executed story, maybe you would believe that these four people with the limited amount of stuff that they have around them could solve this problem. But they can't. I mean, they just can't. I, I I cannot express how bad this feels because it's like, I know it's coming. As a disaster movie, we have to have the complications. But when it happens, I'm like, there's just no way. Like, yeah. there's just no way that this would work. And, and, and you know, so they kind of leave it there and then we get, I'm not going to say it's the most famous scene in the film, but it is the one I've, I've seen referenced. And that is of course, you know, we've already talked about it too. The, the golden gate scene bridge with the resident from scripts. <laughs> and this, this was like the, the trailer shot, you know, the golden gate bridge falling apart. Of course. Yes. Just as, as we saw with X-Men three, the last mm-hmm. stand. I mean, if you want to have a real big movie, you got to blow up the golden gate bridge. It's the only thing you can do really. Uh, I will say that the I, I did like the scene where they popped the tires and like the tires were melting. That was cool. I mean, that looked cool. Yeah, in a um, different movie, that would have been neat. Yeah, in a different movie where I actually was could believe that something would get that hot to melt a tire, <laughs> you know? Because I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the desert, uh, but it gets quite warm. Um, it's almost like we've <laughs> figured out ways to deal with that, but this was really hot. It's really it's, hot. You don't um, even know how just hot a, it was. And, and I love that it's just a little strip, right? Like it's just a teeny tiny <laughs> little, just a little like like 500 foot wide strip that just comes through because that's how atmosphere works. And it's very, yeah. it's very predictable. Um, It's just ill-advised, all ill-advised. And, and so the final conflict basically comes down to, they know the mission's compromised up on the surface in the darkened control room. And so Richard Jenkins, man with his finger always on the button, <laughs> says, we'll just use Project Destiny to do a thing. What that thing is, I don't think is ever fully explained. I think just to shoot it at the core. And hope We're going to blow it up. <laughs> hope something happens. <laughs> I mean, it's the constant like, I mean, I, you know, Rick and Morty is, is now unfortunate and an unfortunate minefield because of assholes. Um. But, you know, I, I do love that they have that scene in tons of Rick and Morty episodes where, like, the military dude just wants to fire nukes. It's like, when are we firing the nukes? And then at the in the episode where, like, the floating heads come out and they do, like, the show me what you got. 
the guy fires the nukes and the nuke flies up and it hits the head and it just goes (laughs) (laughs) that's the sound it makes and and that's just how i imagine this working right like he would shoot project destiny they'd wait and they would just be like and they'd all die and it's just it's ridiculous like again these tropes of the like oh we have the military contingency plan like that's what they are that's how these movies work but the contingency plan here is dumb like it's it's a stupid contingency plan and they kind of know that it won't work but yet they're going to do it anyway and kill our heroes like of course this is never going to happen so it's just it's very silly and and really really dumb and so of course they come up with a solution the solution involves what putting the bombs that they were just going to detonate all together and and they're saying these are 200 megaton bombs i i again am i a scientist no no uh as far as i know the largest bomb ever built was a hundred megaton and the russians built it it's never been dropped obviously um I just I can't imagine a 200 megaton bomb being this size and that given all of the shit that's already happened to them that they wouldn't have already exploded. Yeah. You know, um but I don't know. Again, not a scientist. But I don't think any of these people are either. I don't <laughs> think so. I they're really not coming across that way on screen. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to believe that you people aren't as smart as you say you are. <laughs> And so we get Delroy Lindo's death, uh, where he has to go down into a uh, an exhaust tube. Like I don't even I don't even know at this point what this is supposed to be. But again, I think they they state in the film that it's nine thousand degrees inside there. Okay, which is probably the right number. Like I, I'm sure somebody looked up and like they had like an Encyclopedia Britannica, and they're like, "Well, what is the temperature inside the core of the planet? Nine thousand degrees? Okay." Um, and they and we were told earlier that their suits were rated for five, and okay, if you said the suits rated for five and it's five thousand five hundred in there. I might believe that Delroy Lindo could sort of slowly walk his way down this tube and just like watching his suit to sort of slowly deteriorate, but 4,000 degrees hotter. Like, like I hate to tell you guys, but you would just, you would melt instantly. No, like instantly. Like, I, I again, I I'm not a scientist, but I, I I've I've read that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were 3,500 degrees, yeah, and it flash fried everything, yeah, everything inside of its blast radius. Movies I are determined to to downplay all of like everything that that a disaster movie puts out. It goes. I guess this is the core problem with them. They go out of their way to downplay those effects for the rest of the film to kind of set up these heroic things. But this was just wild. This was too much. 
Uh, yeah. I, I can't suspend my disbelief any more than I already have. <laughs> I mean, the, again, you're just, you're pushing it, movie. Like, you've pushed it too far. And then the, okay, again, tonally speaking, the other thing that's weird is that, like, they have to vent the tube or let the magma in or something, and that's what finally, like, kills, kills him, because 9,000 degrees ain't enough, apparently. Um, and there's, like, and then they try to turn it into kind of, like, a moment, because Swank goes to, like, push the button, and Aaron Eckhart, like, puts his hand over hers, and they look at each other, and he's like, let me do it. And she's like, okay. I, I hate this. Why? <laughs> what difference does it make? Like, I understand she's already killed like three people with her poor piloting skills. <laughs> but, but like, you know, who cares who pushes the button that ends Delroy Lindo's suffering? Like, he's dying in that tube. Just let him go. I, I don't know, man. It's just, it, it, there's a lot of stuff. There, The other one, okay, this will be the last nitpick that I point out. Well, I probably will. No, I but won't. I'm, I'm going to try. <laughs> So like the the final sequence of the film is that they they realize that they they need to blow up the bombs in sequence and they have to like trigger them in the specific order that's going to cause the rotation to happen. Science stuff, Aaron Eckhart being like, but what about rotation? You know, whatever. You know, oh, it's he like finally a has a scientific interjection. He does actually, and they even use like the name of a principle. I, I don't remember what it was, but he's like, oh, it's like this. You know, whatever. Finally, I can help. <laughs> I, I know a thing and so <laughs> they have to put the each bomb and, and they make they make sure that we understand that these bombs are really heavy like really heavy but they're somehow able to move all the bombs into the the remaining carriages which i assume were there for reasons like they needed them but apparently not so they put all the bombs in the carriages, drop those off in sequence, and then the bombs are going to blow up and cause this chain reaction. So Stanley Tucci and Aaron Eckhart moving the bombs, setting them off, dropping these chambers. And then, of course, something goes wrong. Stanley Tucci gets stuck in one of the chambers, and Aaron they Eckhart... Have, they have, like, some kind of big... The, the, well, the big thing that they're trying to pull at one point rolls around on the floor like smashing into everything because they can't lift it and then <laughs> right like, like like they can't lift it so how have they been moving them how like how have they been moving them and then there's that great moment where they're like we we can't do it and then stanley tucci just lets it go and he's gonna leave aaron eckhart to die and then they hit <laughs> a bump and it rolls like even though they can't lift it, it just so easily tips over and rolls over on Stanley Tucci's leg. Like I just, nothing makes any sense. Yes. I mean, this is really, I I've, I've done some reading on, on action scene writing, right? And that's ostensibly what this is. This is an action scene and your action scene should always open and end with like, a very clear understanding of what's happened and why these things matter, right? Whether you're having John wick shoot a guy in the foot and then, you know, show that he's super intelligent because now that guy's going to lean out because of his foot and you can shoot him in the head or whatever. Like action sequences should, should really be built in such a way that you are escalating with each movement of the character, everything that they're doing. And this one just kind of has these reversals for no reason, just like, Oh, this happened. And then this happened. And Oh, they hit a bump inside of the molten core of the planet that's 
liquid. Yeah, like, I mean, like what? <laughs> and I like so, the part where it was rolling around in the chamber, hitting them. That was funny. Sure. Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> like they're in I the mean, back of an SUV or something. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's a Three Stooges <laughs> sketch, you know. And and so like. And so then the the final problem, because again, that's not enough, is they realize that the last bomb that needs to fire is not going to be powerful enough. It needs more juice in the tank in order to to set this off because of a mathematical equation that Stanley Tucci, genius scientist, forgot about. And to do this, they're going to need the fuel rods from their ship. They're just going to pull the plutonium fuel rods from the ship and put it in there with the bomb. And then that will be enough to, to juice it accordingly. Okay, so that means that Aaron Eckhart and this bomb are in the last carriage right in front of the engine where, where Beck is sitting, piloting, right? So we've been shown the dimensions of this ship very clearly. We're talking about like 15 feet, maybe 20, between where she is sitting and where he is futzing around with this bomb. And the movie makes a big deal out of the fact that Beck can't hear what's going on. Like the the comms have been knocked out, so their little headset mics don't work. And that's why she doesn't know what's going on while he's like shutting down the power and, and, and crippling the ship, basically. But... I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'll clarify. I'll say it. But I know that sound travels pretty far in an enclosed space. And I I find it hard to believe that if Aaron Eckhart was not screaming at the top of his lungs in the single carriage behind the cockpit where she's sitting, that she couldn't hear him. You know? I hear something. Just anything. Yeah, rumbling, maybe like a hint uh, of what's going on. But he has to pull the plutonium out. The plutonium is apparently very warm. It's really hot. And it melts the chains that he was going to use to drag it. <laughs> and, and, and so he heroically you know, grabs it with his hands, even though he's burning himself horrifically. Mind you, these suits, we've been told, can withstand 5,000 degrees of heat. And they stood up pretty well to 9,000 degrees. 9,000 degrees. <laughs> like, that's so, the ultimate stress test so far. So here's what I posit. See, when things are hot, just hot, they radiate heat extensively. It's how fire works. I don't know if you're familiar. Uh, you light a fire, and then that fire the combustion. I've encountered it once or twice. It, it, once or twice. I mean, it's a thing that can, could be challenging if you're not a good, real scientist. <laughs> um, but that generates heat that goes beyond the object itself. Like, fires are hot, not in the fire. Like, you don't have to put your hand in the fire to be burned. Um, so either there's something about the casing of this plutonium that's allowing it to burn through gloves that are capable of withstanding 5,000 degrees but yet he's not wearing a helmet and his face is there. So why isn't his face being burned off by the 5,000 degree hot thing? Uh, well, 
And again, not a scientist. <sighs> Maybe there's an explanation. Very possible. Kind of feel like it's not. Feel like it's just it, Aaron Eckhart being like, I don't want to put on the dumb helmet today. <laughs> if there if there were an explanation, I would love it if the movie would let us in on that. Sure. Maybe just you know, kind of mention of, it. Instead of loading the movie with the with the peach pit analogy, <laughs> maybe like have some explanations for stuff like this. I don't know. Maybe he maybe if there'd been another peach pit available, he could have explained it thoroughly. Like, <laughs> Take this is a how, break and been like, this is what's going on right now. This is how heat works. Let me explain. Uh, yeah. So I that was just one thing. I was like, wait, if it's that hot, wouldn't it just be burning his face off? Nah. You know, like if especially one side of his face, you know, the part of his face that's closest to the heat, it might burn. I'm that. telling you, Christopher you know, Nolan I mean, was sitting in the audience watching this movie, going, "I'm going to cast all of these people in the role of a lifetime." This is my cast for The Dark Knight Returns, or for The Dark Knight. Um, yeah, I mean, so the the movie has has basically expended all of the disaster movie tropes at this point. The final one is, of course. That through wit and dumb luck, our heroes are able to escape this impossible situation. Because remember, they're in the core of the earth, um, which is quite far down in terms of earth. And they don't have any power because they use the plutonium to blow to, to cause the explosion to be larger. So Aaron Eckhart's big idea is that the ship is basically like a uh, solar panel, which I think is a gross oversimplification. But, but he he just, they pull a bunch of the wires from the power system. Like, you see them pulling these like massive cables, like burr, 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 ripping them out. And then he's just, uh, what appears to be welding them to the hull of the ship to provide power to the ship. <laughs> And then they're just gonna gonna ride the wave, baby. Uh, they're gonna turn on the engine. They can't. They're not the drill. So this is an important thing. I think worth mentioning is they're they're not gonna turn on the drill. They can't do that. They don't have the power for it. But they do have enough power for the engines as long as the heat stays high. And so using this heat, they then navigate. They navigate through the entirety of the planet. They don't have to drill. Yeah. They're able to find a path through the tectonic plates. I dug and, a hole to China. <laughs> it's just so it's like, well, if you could do that, why did you need to dig the hole? Like just go like implying that there is a single channel that would take us all the way to the Earth's core from the ocean. <laughs> Is just wow. Uh, just wow. And it didn't have to be this way. They could have come up with some. I mean, I'm not going to know. Just say that the drill works. Who cares? Right? What difference does it make? Yeah, like I <clears throat> I can't stress enough that I am willing to entertain a lot of ridiculous things in a movie. Um, some of the movies that I have watched and enjoyed have been ridiculous. And I mean, they were some full of, our, of things that couldn't happen ever. Some of our favorite movies are about space wizards with laser swords fighting yeah. wizards. I mean, you know, Love like it. 
<clears throat> you can get away with a lot. <laughs> but this movie wants me to take this seriously. Yeah. It wants me to believe that this could happen. Like, that's how it's presenting it. I can't even really articulate what that is. But it's, I think it's a quality of disaster movies that they want you to take some part of them seriously. But this is just... I think Independence Day could happen sooner than the events in this movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's a problem. I mean, that's a bit of a problem yeah. when Independence Day is more plausible than your drill down to the center of the planet movie. Yeah. Um. So then we, we do get a scene after the explosions. I, I did love this. We go back to the, the darkened control room and they've got a little model up on the screen and like the road. The core starts rotating, and we just hear an eighty-yard line, eighty-yard line in the background. It's turning. <laughs> just the like, core has oh. started. It's moving. Ah, ah. And and they do they do the Apollo thirteen high fiving and yes, yeah. It's it's just so blasé, so stupid. Um, and and then of course, so we're told that they're traveling with this incredible speed from the rotation of the planet restarting. That they're moving at 420 knots. Okay, that's 500 miles an hour. That's how <laughs> fast they're going. <laughs> Meaning that they're going to be all the way back. If if they can maintain the speed, that means they're going to be all the way back to the surface in four hours. Which again caused me to say, like, why didn't you just do that to begin with? Why wasn't that the plan? And and again, this is all predicated on that we're not going to run into anything, like no more diamond pockets, no more, <laughs> no more geodes, right? Like we're just going to be able to just like ride the wave. Uh, and then they'd established earlier that whales like the sound the ship makes because it's ultrasonic. And that's how they find them is the whales. The whales circle the ship and the military finds the whales because DJ Qualls is a smart boy who figures out that it's the whales, and then he gets to be the guy on the deck of the carrier being like, but guys, it's the Dubai! In his I mean, dumb little sweater. I don't that, have to tell you. this. That's stupid. That's very so stupid. stupid. <laughs> I mean, like, and I love whales on film. Star Trek IV Voyage Home is my Star Trek movie. But uh, to rely upon whales to provide you with the location of this ship, needle in a haystack style, uh, not so sure. And I did want to point out that him on the on the aircraft carrier, that super close up where his hair is completely different, 100 percent a reshoot. Absolutely a reshoot like they did not have this ending and then they put it on poor little DJ Qualls to solve this problem for them. And it just it, it's just the worst. Um. Anyway. Uh, so they get rescued, and then DJ Qualls goes to a cyber cafe and reveals the truth to the world. And that's in, it. In yeah. in one of the all-time great movie computer sequences. <laughs> Pretty good. <A> lot <laughs> this of, is how movie computers work. It's a lot of skull and crossbones on screens, a lot of like network-initiated Accessing messages. Network. Connection initiated. <laughs> but... Without a doubt, the thing that I had forgotten, that when it happened, I said, this is perfect, is that this film, the core, ends with a song. As many of these films do, right? Armageddon, 
don't want to close my eye. Right. Like Ugh. we've, we got it right. We've got to have the rock hit song that we can put on the radio and say from the hit movie, the core coming at you hot on Terry and balls in the, in the morning. <laughs> you know? Um, this jam titled echelon by none other than 30 seconds to fucking Mars. Jared Leto just shitting all over an already shitty thing. So and, bad. um, it's truly glorious. It started and I heard his voice and I was like, oh, yes. Perfect. Perfect this, ending to a perfect film. What I like about it is that you know exactly the place and the time when you hear this. <laughs> like, ah, 2003. <clears throat> I remember. I was, was there. It very. Very weird year. Yeah, I remember when Jared Leto's music career began, and I remember hating it so bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just, I was thoroughly shocked I, to be reminded, A, that 30 Seconds to Mars existed, and, and B, that, you know, they were out there actively trying to attach their music to film projects. And what did they get? The core. And, and it just ends up being that, sh- that just shitty little cherry right on the top of a shitty little Sunday. <laughs> yeah. It's perfect. I mean, I, I cannot, I cannot think of a better song to end this movie. Like it's, it's ideal. I, I can't, I can't imagine. There's no other band that I would look at and be like, no, it really should have been really should have been this one. Uh, it, it just doesn't exist. And, and I, I love it. I love it. Cause so, <laughs> So here's what this comes to. This is a painful movie to watch in most circumstances. Like it's, it's not an easy film to watch. We've discussed in length as to why, but it's also a remarkable watch. Like it's in kind of incredible to see all of these pieces fail so miserably to gel into a cohesive whole. Yeah. Especially in a genre that most people believe if you hit all these beats it's basically a slam dunk yeah right? it, like, i mean they all of the pieces were there but it's like they were all rotated the wrong way yeah absolutely like this I is mean, the this the worst assembling of a jigsaw puzzle i've ever seen this is okay if you've seen that gif of the the guy using one of like the kids puzzles and it's got like the rectangle and the square and the star and the circle and you're supposed to like take each shape and slide it yep. into those pops but what they figured out was that you could just take the same shape and slide them all into the rectangle. Oh. They they all fit. Like that's <laughs> that's what this was. That's what this movie is. Is them just saying like, well, we need it to fit into the rectangle. Can we do that? Mm, well, let's let's try and put the star. Turns in out here. they all fit into the rectangle. They all fit into the rectangle. It's like, Neat. well, should we should we think about using some of the other shapes? No. Nah. <laughs> no point. These are a slam dunk, right? The kids love these. Uh, just rem- it it is truly remarkable. So this is this is a film that I'm gonna you know as we get into the recommendations I'm gonna recommend watching because it is it is such a colossal train wreck. Um, it's it's one of those you know we've talked about the the you know so bad it's good circular scale and this is certainly I mean maybe one of the best candidates for that. Like this is a movie that is so sort of groundbreakingly inept on so many levels. 
that it becomes a joy to watch because of that and that alone. And it's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, I, I, I'm not going to say that this is a movie that I'm going to watch repeatedly because I love the process of watching it. It's a hard film to watch. Like I said, it feels every bit of its two hour and 10 minute runtime or whatever. Like it's, it, it's, it's a slog. It, but in, but in that you really do get like an incredible experience and a, and a lesson in how you can have a film project with all of the right pieces in place right? Like all of the stuff that you need to have a successful movie is right here and miss the mark completely. Like to have all of that be in basically meaningless because the final thing you produced was so bad. Um, so it, it's an incredible watch for that reason alone. So if you've never seen the core, I, I think it just shifted to Netflix. It was on HBO max when I watched it. Um, but it's, it's definitely out there. Like you can find the core. You can, you can go to like a big lots and probably <laughs> find it for 50 cents in a places bin. are actively trying to rid <laughs> themselves of like, copies of this movie. You could probably go over to your cousin's house and he's got four copies of it underneath his table leg to support it because <laughs> it's slightly too short. Like it's that kind of movie. There's there it's out there, but you know, it's, it's a recommend for me because you know, in, in film to have a major theatrical release, that just gets so much of this wrong. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's it's a, it's a fascinating thing to watch as it just slams into it. Um, I'm glad that most of the people who were a part of this project sort of came out unscathed, you know, Stanley Tucci did fine. Adelry Lindo's doing fine. I think he's going to be in the new blade movie. So he's probably set. Um, Hillary Swank, obviously, I mean, she won an Oscar the year after this. She won another Oscar a couple years later. So, I mean, she's doing great. She's doing fine. Um, Aaron Eckhart, I mean, you know, he was in the Batman movie and he made that that Frankenstein movie. That was pretty good. He's, he's doing I, things. Frankenstein. Uh, he does yeah, what mean, he wants. He's still out there and, and that's good. You know, so nobody's careers were... We'll, we'll call it destroyed, right? Um, and, and I think that's for the best. This is one of those movies that you can't hang blame on this. Like there's, there's nowhere where you can, you can point at the finger and say like, here's where all this went wrong. <laughs> like it's everything it's top to bottom, you know? Yeah. So, so I'm glad that nobody, I mean, I guess John, John Emil, I mean, like I said, he didn't really do a ton of film after this. He's mostly been a TV guy ever since. He learned um, the hardest lesson of all. He probably got the worst of it. I, I don't know about the writers. I didn't really do much looking at them. Uh, like I said, I, they defended the film pretty passionately after it came out. I remember um, I remember one of them, I think it was John Rogers, who was like the final listed screenwriter. So he's probably the one that did the final rewrites on it. Uh, Cooper Lane, who was one of the producers, was also listed as, as a screenwriter. So I imagine maybe he's the one who developed it initially, but I think Rogers was the one who actually like did the final, you know, the final passes to, to, to get it into to fighting shape, if you want to call it. Uh -huh. um, but like the only other film I'll point out that John Rogers wrote, and it was right after this one. It, well, I take it back. He, he wrote a couple, but the one I want to point out is that he also wrote the Halle Berry Catwoman. Ugh. 
Uh, and that was that was his 2003 and 2004. That was that was a one-two punch of the core followed by Catwoman, and then he was listed as co-writer for Transformers as first listed co-writer, implying that it was an in-development script that he was probably doing for the studio that was then taken by Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman for its sort of final shooting form, and Michael Bay took over. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't want to hang everything on this guy. I know that I, 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 I'm sure he's a good guy. I'm sure he's a a good dude. Uh, (laughs) Apparently he was one of the comic book writers behind the blue beetle relaunch. They did for DC's 52, the Jimmy Reyes blue beetle character who is going to be in a film. Like he's got a movie on the slate coming up. Um, so, I mean, the guy's been around, I, I but dude, like, mm, this is a bad movie. This is a bad movie. And, and then he followed it up with Catwoman, which doesn't do a lot to say like, oh, definitely wasn't this guy's fault. <laughs> you know? But I hope that co-writing credit on Transformers netted him some fine dollars. I, you know, that's usually the way that dream. goes. Yeah. Whatever that dream may be. That socks made of silk money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. But anyway, uh, so it's a recommend for me. I, I don't know if you'll feel similarly. I know we've, we've both enjoyed chatting about it throughout the week. But. I I will never turn down a disaster movie because there's just something captivating about even the worst of them. Sure. Um, yeah. Because, you know, as bad as Moonfall was, I had a great time just being dumbfounded that a movie like that could exist. Okay. I have, uh, to, and I have to confess something. I'm sorry to interrupt. I've watched Moonfall three more times. It's just weekend. such a weird movie. It's like, how, how, why, why it's the this? same impulse? It's the, how does this exist impulse? Like, yeah. How, how did a human being allow this to be made? And, and I don't I have, have a good to, answer. And I can't like, I can't use the word recommend. I can't mm. recommend that you hurt yourself intentionally, <laughs> but if you're Feel in the market the for a little pain and you want to watch a movie that will hurt the core, the core might be worth it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you have a tolerance where, you know, I mean, and if your time's not precious, I guess is the other piece, right? If your time's you haven't super paid precious, any money. Yeah. D- yes. <laughs> pay no money for this. Like again, if you can find it for 50 cents in the, in the bin at, at you know, your local Menards or whatever, yeah. go, go for it. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not a recommendation. I guess that is a good distinction to make. It's more like if, if you have an appreciation for watching when Hollywood gets it wrong, right? Like when, when somebody takes a swing and then just misses the ball so hard, that they like fall down face first and break their own nose. Then this is a movie that will provide you with an an almost endless amount of joy. And it's so much like moonfall that I think the two could almost be watched as a paired set. Like you could spend an afternoon watching this and then watching moonfall and watch them make in essence, the same mistakes. Yeah. Like almost identical beat for beat mistakes. You know, and in and in one case, you have a film that's openly trying to ape in in that at least at that time a much better director, and then the horrifying realization that the director that the first movie was trying to ape 
then somehow aped himself and screwed up his own formula so badly that he basically destroyed a genre of film for at least a decade. Like that yeah. is remarkable. I mean, that's like, mm, 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 that's, just, <laughs> that's just, that's just schadenfreude that you don't get anywhere. Uh, it's, it's so delicious and tasty. Uh, and like I said, these, these disaster films are not going anywhere, but I think we, we're not going to see the frequency of them for a while, unless somebody's got just a, a banger of an idea. Uh, for how one of these could work. Uh, another one on the list that I need to watch, I probably should have watched in preparation for this, is Geostorm, the Gerard Butler one. I've heard that one is also pretty rough. Well, you know how I feel about Gerard Butler. <laughs> yeah, you're already on the back foot. <laughs> um, and, and see, the thing there that would make it fascinating and why I need to watch it is that it's directed by Dean Devlin, who is oh. Roland Emmerich's producer. Yeah. So it's like it's the movie that even Roland Emmerich wouldn't dip low to direct. So Dean Devlin just directed it. <laughs> that might be worth watching. Yeah. So maybe we'll maybe we'll talk about that one next, but or not next. I, we probably need to take a break from the disaster genre, but it's somewhere down the line. Maybe we'll check <laughs> I out. I need to Geo read a book Store. first. <laughs> <clears throat> I've heard good things about that plane movie. Maybe <laughs> check that out. Um, apparently, it takes place on a plane. That's what I've no. heard. Yeah, I don't know. It's a pretty decent title. <laughs> plane. Oh, is it on a plane? It is. Ooh, very distinctive. You know what would be the real smart move is if it wasn't on a plane. That's true. Like if the whole if it was called plane, but you got there and it was just like a dude on an airboat in the Florida in the Florida Keys or something, and these like, planes were flying overhead, and he's like, Man, I wish I was on one in planes. It's and that was, it's about that was the, the planes, reference. but yeah. they're not in it. But they're not in those planes. They just <laughs> They long to be on a plane or there's stuff. <laughs> it's above about the them, romance you know, of planes. The it's very metaphorical. You wouldn't understand. <clears throat> yeah, you wouldn't get it. It's like ripples you know? in a pond. It's <laughs> only, like he's on a ring. Only Gerard Butler gets it. That's what you It's like remember. this peach. <laughs> oh, yes. Just open the peach. Look at the inside. See how it's like the core. <laughs> uh, we even call it the core. Actually, we call this a pit and a peach, but you know, in an apple. But we it's call also it like kind of a core. That's a bit of core, you know, you get it. Are you wait, okay, let me explain further. I don't want I don't want this metaphor to get away from us here. You definitely need to make sure you understand. Does anybody have a lighter? <laughs> we need to light this beach on fire <laughs> to make our point about the earth being destroyed. I don't want this metaphor to get away from me. <laughs> who has who has hairspray? I'm looking for hairspray. I need to make this this very clear. All right, so a, a solid, uh, not recommendation, but a an, in, an encouraged hate watch, maybe? Yeah. Like, you know, we encourage you to hate watch this film. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's something, man, and it was fun to revisit. Like I said, there's just so many things misfiring. The visual effects, the which it, the visual effects of them actually being inside the core we didn't address, but there's no need to. It's just all wrong. Like, it's just wrong. And then the... The, the bombs exploding and still having kind of like a horizon that they're exploding from. Very interesting mm -hmm. choice. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I'll leave it. To, I'll, dear listener, I'll leave it to you to discover for yourself and make your own list of questions. Because that's that's where <laughs> the fun begins. I'm sure you will have many, many questions. All right. So let's uh, in wrapping up, where can uh, somebody find you online if they want to talk about their intense love affair with Aaron Eckhart's chin in the core. 
Uh, I usually post about all of the Roland Emmerich movies that I can't stop watching on uh, my Twitter, which is Baskinator. Nice. And uh, I, I post, I mean, it's it's a Roland Emmerich Stan account at this point, but oh, yeah. I post at T Baskin. Uh, you can get us together at F Peace Theater or Failure Peace at gmail.com. Uh, all right. Well, we will be back with another discussion of a Hollywood m- treasure, uh, uh, uh-huh. an, an overlooked gem, a failure piece, something that may be worth your time, even though it isn't perfect. Because who can be apart from Aaron Eckhart's chin? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever we watch next, it's got to be better than the core. It's true. I mean, we've really set the bar low and now we can get into it. Now we can look for the the real stuff. Maybe Terrifier 2. Maybe we'll check that out. I've heard that's <laughs> oh, pretty good. <no>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>